Yeah, so the church was selling a piece of paper called an indulgence. Luther hated that. He thought, you know, you, that you can't buy your way out of hell. Um, and uh, so we made this analogy that the, the diploma is the modern indulgence. The types of people the crowd chose to sacrifice were often the, the heroes of mythology as well as the victims. You know, a king for Gerard is, is a scapegoat who has not been sacrificed yet. The thought of rationalism came from this idea that we could purge ourselves of cognitive biases, we could, uh, you know, become better thinkers by learning how to argue and weigh evidence and so on. But, you know, after 10 years of this, I, I asked, to what end? I, I, I can't think of anyone out of that community who's become, like, a great doer in some sense. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today we're speaking with Michael Gibson, a venture capitalist working on the Teal Fellowship and the author of Paper Belt on Fire. We discuss scenes, talent identification, rationalism, conservatism, the Teal Fellowship, science fiction, and how to get out of our current state of stagnation. As always, if you like the show, please The best thing you can do to help us out is to let someone know who would enjoy it. After all, I'm sure that if you like the show, if you think that it's worthwhile to spend time on it, then the odds are you know a friend who would think the same. And not only are you helping us, you're also helping them. And I would really appreciate that. Without further ado, here's Michael Gibson. So I want to open up this podcast with an extended version of the bit I normally do. And I'm going to informally title this Rate My Friend Groups, because uh, the book that we're going to be talking about today, your book, uh, Paper Belt on Fire, uh, really goes through some of the some of the talent finding that I think has been a common topic on this podcast. So you, you mentioned going to a bunch of various hackathons. What do you think is the main kind of factor that makes hackathons a good wellspring of talent? I think it's changed over time. So what I'll say is when we first started hitting the hackathon circuit, they they were a fresh new thing, I think, in 2013 or so. In a lot of schools like the University of Waterloo, Michigan, MIT, um, they all started launching these, these hackathons. And maybe because a lot of the low hanging fruit in terms of weekend hacks hadn't been plucked yet. Um, (laughs) I think the hackathons drew a lot more excitement and people. So just in terms of sheer numbers, a lot of people would show up sometimes some of these events, thousands, you know, fast forward to today, a lot of those hackathons aren't quite what they used to be. Hack the North at Waterloo is it's one of the rare exceptions. Um, And I think there's just something about, the idea of building over 36 hours that draws a interesting set of people. Um, certainly they have the skills to do it, which is one thing that could be important, but, but it's also just like, Hey, you know, school is one thing and, and I'm on campus with my friends and maybe they're traveling from, from a different state to come to this hackathon. Uh, all these types of things act as a filter in a sense for uh, a group of people and we've just found that it, you know, it's a great focal point for bringing in, I mean, ma- mainly software engineers, to be honest, in terms of talent. Um, and over the years, we've just, yeah, we've met a, a large number of uh, great people at hackathons. 
they're not quite what they used to be to, to return to that point. Um, so, you know, we don't go to nearly as many hackathons, but I wish there was something that could uh, restore that that fun and excitement that that was there in the early days. Where do you think that drop off happened? Uh, I also agree, actually, from my experience, there's also been a drop off. But I want to hear from you first. Uh, yeah, Where do you think I the think somewhere probably 2016 thereabouts, and then into by and then when COVID hit, I think that probably was the straw that broke the camel's back. But but right, yeah, maybe 2016, maybe as late as 2017. Um, I mean, maybe it does come down to, it's like when, when you first set foot on a hackathon and you've never been there before, it's pretty fun and exciting because there are all these, you know, there are these big prizes, uh, big sponsorships from big corporations might be a good place, uh, to get a job. If you're, uh, undergraduate, you're looking for work, maybe just an internship. And so maybe that feels very exciting. And then fast forward a few years, um, you know, you're tired of all these sponsorship prize and it turns into just like this race to see who can make the big longest Rube Goldberg machine linking APIs. <laughs> and that's not nearly as fun as it used to be. Um, so yeah, I think there's some, like maybe the novelty wore off on people, but I, I think for the ones that are still out there, it does seem to be skewing more towards the, let's say freshman and sophomore years as well. Now you know, yeah. it's pretty rare to see seniors at a hackathon. Um, and I think that's because of that. Oh, freshness. that's what you mean. That's interesting. Yeah. So my experience, maybe this is something that's more of the Canadian scene. Although I did go to some uh, East Coast hackathons uh, as well in Michigan and New York, but to me, it's bit. It was really high school focused. You know, there were a lot of high schoolers mm. there, uh, and uh, I also think that it's skewed now towards uh, freshmen, especially. Yeah, but you know that that's from a starting point, and I started. I, I really like attended these in 2017, uh, mostly one in 2016, and then like a few in 2018. Right, mm. and I see like the same kind of uh, drop off. Maybe maybe it already dropped off from from before I even from before I even started paying attention. But to me, there was also like a really pronounced drop off in 2018, especially. Uh, that kind of ruined my <laughs> ruined my interest in it, but yeah, why do you think that is? I knew you already mentioned some of the causes, but yeah, you're right about the high school students. You're, you, I certainly still see a lot of high school students at hackathons, and that must be exciting to visit a college campus, usually a pretty big name one, and meet other people who are interested in working on quirky things. Uh, I think, yeah, I think the excitement's still there for those people, but yeah, I I, I think it's probably, I would just point to like the lack of charismatic things to come out of hackathons where charismatic is Mm. defined as uh, really fun, impressive, exciting, strange. Um, And, and instead I think we've seen, we've all seen the same hacks over and over. I can't, you know, nowadays it's, you know, object recognition for the trash. So it separates recycling or, you know, some kind of VR thing using computer vision. I don't know. You know, it's like the the same stuff keeps coming over and over. Um, So I think that's gotta be part of it. Just the, the lack of like there, there isn't a whole lot you can build in 36 hours anymore. That's pretty novel. Right. Right. Do you think the recent, you know, GPT innovations that's going to be, I mean, I'm not sure if you've, 
if you've seen this apology mm. uh, retweet of I think some either high school student or or freshman who put out you know uh, the GPT times right just just Hilarious. making a wrapper for GPT just applying the new release to basically make New York Times stories. It's very funny. That, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, I saw that. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. That's I don't know. Would that even take thirty six? Would that even take thirty six hours? Right. Right. Uh, maybe yeah, to get like I, I in that tweet thread, it was but... mentioned how long it took the person to make it, and and it very well may have been you know just a couple of days. And, and and what's more is they had not this person had not been an experienced coder. I think that it's even said that this person took a boot camp course recently. Um, right. So that that no, is I mean, that is impressive. I, I went to Hack Princeton in November. Very small. I want to say 150 people. And of the final of the teams that submitted for the final round, uh, I want to say half of them either used GPT, Chat GPT, or you know some version of that, and uh, the others were using Dolly. And, and just coming up with images and then, you know, maybe the, the hack was like, oh, here's a gallery or here's some way to show your friends these things. Um, so those tools are powerful. It's true. I mean, it's pretty impressive. That's true. It's like if you create the artwork for the gallery, that's pretty impressive. Um, but on the other hand, it's like also pretty low level because it's just like once you see a few of the artworks, you get used to them. Right, right. I think something that's interesting about the the specific, or is it almost all ML stuff? I know you talked about VR. You talked about hmm. uh, you, you talked about actually something that I think has been missing, and I've been told by some people that it, it's missing because it was basically it like basically diverged into its own thing. Is like crypto stuff. Like 2018, yeah. there were a bunch of projects that were like smart contracts. And this was like very early smart contracts, right? This was all on like raw Ethereum, right? Mm-hmm. So totally. I, I saw that hanging around. And then I've been told now by some people that that's kind of like migrated to its own thing, right? There, there are still like uh, like blockchain hackathons, but like each, each mm-hmm. like layer one, right? Each basically like currency name, right? Ethereum, Bitcoin, Solana has like its own hackathons. Yeah, where people like build stuff on that. So, so is that like true? It's pretty rare. I yeah, I have not seen a crypto related hack. I mean, maybe an NFT type thing where again it's like a gallery or some way to send it to your friends, but uh, nothing really ambitious. Right. It's almost actually. Do you know what I think it is? It's almost like the reverse of the teal hypothesis, right? Like the zero to one hypothesis Mm. where that's mainly about taking like things that have never existed and just like, you know, building like a prototype of them. It feels almost like, and he points at the business world. He's like, the business world is just like saturated with all of these uh, like competing businesses that are all trying to be the same thing. Right. Mm. And that doesn't actually produce a lot of, uh, a lot of value. And, you know, the zero to one is more important. I think in the hackathon space, it's almost the opposite where, mm. you know, there's not enough of a quality control. There are all of these, like, honestly, like pretty, pretty like garbage versions, including stuff that I've made, right? Very garbage yes. versions uh, of like ideas and yeah. just making it like a thousand times cleaner or like not even that, right? Making mm-hmm. it like 10 times cleaner and that would be like actually like very notable and would probably have like a significant impact on the willingness of people to just use it like in real life. 
Mm-hmm. But that doesn't get done because if you do that, you just you know you just seem lame. That's not going to win a hackathon prize. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, there's some truth to that. I, I think the API prize incentive system is good because okay, you know people want to win money or some uh, piece of technology as a prize. But on the other hand, I think it, it channels behavior. So you know how many hacks can you use, can you use Twilio for right? And, <laughs> um, yeah you know, people just want to win the prize. So it generates a number of hacks using this one API. Yeah. I mean, the incentive, like, I know you, you know this, but like for the audience, like the incentive is like, you know, companies will build certain things with certain tools. They'll mm-hmm. say like, okay, if you already prove that you know how to use this tool by building this thing in hackathon, then we're just going to hire you. Right? Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. And so yeah, like the incentive there, it's, it's kind of like, it's not even like perverse, right? It's just the incentive, right? It's just yeah, like it's pretty straight you know, very straightforwardly. This is what it what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's not well, like it's being like perverted in some way. I'm sure those people, you know, if they accept those companies' offers, they do like good things at those companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe this isn't all that bad. But for in terms of for you know the like the coolness of just watching the hackathon scene, I think you know that that's where there's a loss here. Yeah. Because it, it was fun. I met so many people on the road at hackathons. I mean, the hackathon was just an organizing principle to get a, a bunch of people in the town for a weekend. And often the best interactions had nothing to do with the hackathon itself. It was just hanging out somewhere and, you know, at a table and people would congregate, um, gave me an excuse to go to a campus and visit some hacker house that's affiliated with the campus or some other, you know, group of students. Um, and I feel like, uh, I don't know of anything right now that has had, had could replace that kind of energy and, and gravitational pull that those had for that period of time. Right. Our, and a few friends of mine have mentioned that hacker houses are still like somewhat popular nowadays, mm. but I don't know. What experience have you had with that? Uh, I've seen, I, yeah, they seem to be thriving. Um, every so, you know, I meet, I just talked to someone last week who was trying to seed more of these types of thematic tech houses, not just for college students, but also for, let's call it, you know, people 18 to 28 who are moving to some new city and don't really know anyone. Um, I, I, I don't have total numbers on these things, but, but they're out there. Uh, some of them, in San Francisco, for a long time, there was a house that was devoted to biology and computation, which was always interesting. Um, but um, and then and then some of the old ones died. Uh, God, we uh, well we know Ari Weinstein and uh, Conrad Kramer from the hackathon scene. Um, they they created their app Workflow at uh, ha- you know the hackathon at Michigan that developed and turned into a app, and then. Uh, they were acquired by Apple, and that app is now known as Shortcuts on every phone. So that's a pretty impressive trajectory for a couple people or three three guys who came out of the hackathon circuit. Um, right. And they had a house in San Francisco in, in Mission, in the Mission called Mission Control. And, and those two guys ran it for many years. And I, got, I think it lasted like six years with some turnover. That was really impressive to me. So... I think I think young people are looking for community and friendship, and, and the hacker houses allow them to do that. But I've never seen the, been able to see the scale. You get the corporate effort to do this with We Living, 
I think there are a few things out there now trying to create some sense of community among a group of people living in an apartment building. But uh, I think it, the organicism of it has to be real. Right. It seems, it seems very interesting, this kind of, uh, I'm not sure if this was a pandemic era shift or if, or like where exactly this started. But even just in the last five years, I think that there's been a kind of shift away from communal living. That that seems, and and this includes myself, although I think I always preferred the other, preferred living on my own. Uh, But I think there really has been a shift among young people away from kind of living in a group area. Do you think that that's true? Yeah, I think so. I think um, with COVID, people had to cut down the number of acquaintances they had and keep it to their pod or their strict group of people. Uh, there's something to that. I think there's a great le- relearning with every generation because any any person who wanted to start one of these co-living companies I met, they all were in their 20s. And that meant they were unmarried, had disposable income, and were looking for interesting, exciting experiences with new friends. Um, and, and maybe a house that, or a apartment building that caters to that group, you know, that, that's what they really want. But, but what's true is people, you know, they find partners and that turns into a family. Um, and you just grow up. And I think people in their thirties, uh, you know, they shudder at the thought of having to, you know, live with roommates if they're married and, and, and they want to have kids, um, I mean, that became a joke in the in the late days of San Francisco's mania when the housing shortage was most acute. You had people in their 40s living with roommates and they were joking that this was you know, the prolongation of, of the college juvenile life. And in some ways it was, but it was driven by the scarcity of housing. Um, but it was clear also because of that, that, you know, people in their 30s and 40s don't really want to, you know, live like the cast of friends. Uh, this was something that... <laughs> This is not the joke that I thought you were going to make. The joke that I thought you were going to make is that polyamory is housing policy. <laughs> well, I guess that became a thing too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the, the no. policy was up. I mean, it is it is this kind of like almost harem, right? It, yep. Are there any? Are there any? Like. To me, intuitively, there's got to be, you know, a significant resource imbalance in these arrangements, right? There's got to be one person who's like, you know, the funder. Yeah, or, I think that yeah. emerged in the Bay Area. I Well, here's the thing. is I, it, it, I'll go back to this term I used, the great relearning. I think that comes from a Tom Wolfe essay because he noticed these hippies had given up on hygiene and cleanliness and other things. And then the doctors in the Bay Area started, you know, having these cases come in and these diseases that didn't even have Latin names because they hadn't been seen since medieval times were coming back. Um, and so the idea was like, oh, you can't just, you know, give up all of civilization like cleanliness and hygiene and, you know, sleep in the same bed without cleaning it or using the same toothbrush. Um, so I, th- I feel like that, you know, this seems to be an ongoing theme in the Bay and and the polyamory group is one of them where I think they wanted to reject the uh, monotonous, boring, repetitive life of monogamy 
and try these new forms of relationship that offer more excitement and variety. Um, and, and maybe that works in, you know, maybe, maybe the theory is great, but in practice over the last 10 years, I saw lots of people, you know, find themselves quite depressed or in, in tough spots because they were, you know, in polyamorous relationships and suddenly things like jealousy, something they had never felt before was they found themselves struggling to deal with it. Um, but the, you know, another aspect of that is I think just human sexuality, uh, which for a long time, I think, or I, I think the default assumption of our age is the blank slate in, in popular culture. And, you know, part of the blank slate is that, you know, we are just these free choosing entities. And if I want to love this person or that person, fine. Well, it turns out that there is indeed human nature and women are hypergamous and men, <laughs> men are polygamous in a, in a sense. Um, and so what you see emerge in some of these polycules are just some version of polygamy, where a powerful, high status, wealthy man seems to command more, have access, sexual access to more women than, you know, the struggling beta or gamma male. Um, and, and so a, a new inequality emerged. And, and so I, I think they did not anticipate that, but that's what you see with SBF and, and the Bermuda polycule for sure. <laughs> and I know, and I think there are other ones too, where they're like these, you know, and, and weirdly spinning off of the rationalist community and the AI risk community where these houses would, would come out. And then, and then at some point you'd learn that like the head thought leader of that group is like got four, you know, women relationships and there's some controversy because feelings are hurt and so on. So it's a, to go back to the great relearning, it's just like, okay, this is uh, you know, people have tried this in the past and maybe it works for some small subset, but for most people it turns into chaos. Yeah. To me, that's kind of like, you know, this, this kind of like hedonism, I think that gets affiliated with rationalists mm. and I guess like th there's not a lot of options for me. I actually talk about this with Richard Hanania. I talked mm. about this yesterday in terms of like the time of recording. I'm not sure if that episode will be before or after this one, Okay, uh, but yeah, I talk about why I don't really associate myself with the rationalists. And I think that's really the only option, right? Like hypothetically, mm -hmm. you know, if I were like Scott Alexander, then, then something that I write could have a lot of influence over what the rationalists do. Right. But to me, it's like, you know, that there, there's no reason why rationalism as a movement, right? Like the core principles of rationalism, basically, you're going to try to use evidence. We're going to try to avoid fallacies and so on and so mm. forth. There's no reason that should lead to hedonism, right? Like I think one of my tweets is something like, it's no more rational to have uh, to use birth control than to like stone witches, right? <laughs> it, like, and they say yeah. like, oh, this is just my utility function, right? It's like, okay, well, what if my utility function is you know stoning witches, yeah. right? Right. Um, but but it's 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 kind of clear that this is you know this is sort of a derivative of the kind. Of the types of people, like the psychology of the people who are in rationalism mm. rather than, you know, the principles themselves. I'm sure if we took, you know, it, it's just like, I think it's just a meta effect of having like people with too high openness and, you know, not enough conscientiousness, right? Which yeah. I do think are, are somewhat the type of people, not all of them, but some of the types of people who are drawn to that kind of thing. I think that's uh, right. 
What do you think of Tarantulas? And also on the scale of, you know, more interested in systems and rules. Uh, as yeah, but that doesn't necessarily lead to hedonism, people. right? Um, no, that, I mean, that's a great question. Like, why does it slip down into hedonism? Uh, I mean, I think it's just openness, right? It's just trade openness. Hmm. Yeah. I thought, well, I think, I think that's part of it, but it's also, I think there's a religious component. I think there's something where, uh, utilitarianism seems like the only justifiable secular ethic. Um, right, but my point is that it's not very utilitarian. Like hedonism, <laughs> like, as as yeah. as like as as much utils as you think you know being in a polycule gives you, right? Yeah, that like that to me like obviously detracts from your ability to say keep your crypto exchange solvent, <laughs> or, or or let's say you know solve AI risk. Yeah, that's right? true. That's well, obviously you know, like that's... Not, not very utilitarian either, right? Right, but you don't even have to get into the the ethical side of things. I think it's also true at the heart of rationalism, which is its commitment to epistemology. So, I mean, that, the 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 thought of rationalism came from this idea that we could purge ourselves of cognitive biases. We could, uh, you know, become better thinkers by learning how to argue and weigh evidence and so on. Um, but you know, after 10 years of this, I, I asked to what end I, I, I can't think of anyone out of that community who's become like a great doer in some sense. <laughs> Um, you know, so it's like by studying all this, you know, there was this guy who ran a crypto exchange. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> um, so like on the epistemology, they weren't even rational in there. It's like, and maybe this is like a deeper disagreement with that community, which is, um, yeah, like you said about stoning witches is like, first, you must know what you want to be and what your values are. And then we can talk about the best means to attain those ends. But, you know, it, it may not be the case that studying cognitive biases are going to get me there. So if I wanted to be the greatest poet, you know, I, I, I want to, I'm going to study poetry. I'm going to practice poetry. I'm not going to, you know, maybe study of our systematic biases will help with that. But I think it's also true of things like finance, where it seems like, you know, you might, these t- tricks of the trade uh, involving biases might be the most helpful. All the best hedge fund managers and wealth managers I know are not rationalists. I mean, David Swenson at Yale or, you know, Druckenmiller or whoever. It's like these people, I mean, maybe they're aware of these things, but it's not so, it's not, it doesn't for the, the core of their philosophical worldview the way it does for the rationalists. So it's like, I, I, I implore these people to just get good at something and then you know find the best means to do it and maybe that's the rational step to take but like this 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 abstract rationalism just seems like uh, yeah self defeating right uh, have you ever heard Nassim Taleb's parable of uh of fat tony and uh, dr john right yeah but t- yeah, so remind so for me the audience details yeah so for the audience uh, Dr. John is this like very smart, you know, PhD or like MD, I guess he's a doctor. Right. Uh, and he's, you know, he's been trained very thoroughly and, uh, fat Tony is a successful guy. He's, you know, he's, uh, maybe not formally educated, but he runs a very successful car dealership. He can, he can make a deal and he's, he's quite wealthy. Uh, and 
the parable of Dr. John and uh, Fat Tony is basically that a uh, uh, man in a bar asks them, he flips a coin 50 times and it's heads every single time. And he says, you know, uh, I'll bet you, I'll bet you $50 that the next, that the next uh, flip is going to be heads. Or mm-hmm. if he'll say maybe like, I'll give you $50 if, uh, if it's, uh, if it's tails and if it's heads, you give me a hundred dollars. Right. Yeah. And, uh, or, or maybe the other way around, right. If it's, uh, if it's tails and I'll give you a hundred dollars, if it's heads, then give me $50. Right. So it's positive. If it's, it's positive, if you assume that it's, it's at random. Mm-hmm. So Dr. John might say, you know, uh, I, I learned that, you know, you can never, you can never, uh, judge future probabilities based on past uh, probabilities. So I'm just going to take the deal. And Fat Tony says, you know, there's no way that's a, a fair coin. And maybe he doesn't, you know, do the do the actual math to say like why it's so unlikely. But he he just knows, you know, you just flipped that 50 times and it was heads every single time, right? <laughs> yes. uh, and so the point is that there are certain assumptions that get baked into you if you go through these kind of formalized systems. Hmm. And I'm sure this is related to uh, your book for sure. There are certain assumptions that get baked into you. And if you never question those assumptions, then you'll just end up doing things that are just like plain stupid to a lot of normal people. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that's a great example, I think. Um, you know, another part of this is just the importance of, uh, I guess, accumulated wisdom. Um, I put it once that tradition is the ability to learn from millions of others in the past um, and then maybe innovation is, you know, the opportunity to learn from your own mistakes. And uh, yeah, I think there's some sense in which, you know, relationships and ways of life, uh, there are there are established patterns that ha- the accumulated wisdom of the ages have refined. And to think that you, you know, 25-year-old computer programmer in Oakland are suddenly going to reinvent the relationship is, is pretty bold. I mean, by all means, go and do it uh, if, if that's your hankering. But understand that uh, there's an information problem here, that, that maybe there's information baked into these traditional forms of life. So, uh, or Chesterton's fence is another example of this where you know, we shouldn't just tear down a fence unless we have a good reason to, because it might be there for some reason that we don't know yet. Um, I think there's a conservative bias that uh, to, to some of these old things where the wisdom is baked into them. Right. Uh, something that's very interesting to me uh, in this aspect is kind of like financial regulation. Mm. Right. And it, it, it's kind of strange because financial regulation is sort of, uh, on one hand, it's based on a very kind of explicit rational system of, you know, basically people making trades and people mm. can accept trades if, you know, you, you can have like an order book and you can take, uh, you can take a, take a price from the order book, right? It, it's this kind of very explicit system, but of course it involves human psychology because who is, who is playing, playing in the game, right? The rules of the game are this rationalist system, but the players in the game are all, you know, very much, very much human. And you can mm. say maybe they're a bit less prone to biases the more experience they have or the more kind of institutional uh, the investors are. But at the end, there's still a big influence uh, of this kind of market psychology. And what happens with uh, 
I mean, just looking at the cycle over and over again, to me, like, there's a very clear takeaway is that, like, number one, you should not engage in reckless speculation, mm. in, uh, even in, like, e- like bubbles eventually burst, and you should you should generally not be engaged in kind of rampant speculation. But to me, it's not at all obvious that it should be banned, mm. right? So, like, there, there's kind of, like, these two thoughts that tend to go together. Uh, it's And I would just like to draw uh, to, like, tear them apart, really, to tear the connection between them apart, yeah. which is, like... It's generally bad to, uh, most of the time, it's bad to invest in speculative assets. And we need to stop people from investing in speculative assets. And to me, this is something that's very based on status, right? So, mm. you know, if, if you can say like, oh, this only happened because you didn't ban me from investing from speculative assets, then you seem like less of an idiot, basically. <laughs> and, so, and of course, that's the cycle that happens with, uh, with, um, investment regulation and i think that that's created a lot of unnecessary overhead in terms of finance and i think it was brian kaplan or maybe it was alex tabarrok who said you know a bet is a tax on stupidity it's like simultaneously (laughs) two things can be true you're like most of the time right and i want to emphasize that you know some some kind of risky bets are worth it right but most of the time the average person um, making bets on speculative assets is just going to lose money. And if you're the average person, I would strongly recommend not doing that. And at the same time, like that doesn't mean you should impose overhead on everyone else. Like this just seems like such a, like, it seems like the opposite of a functioning morality to me. It's like not only, you know, it's not only immoral, but it's actively anti-moral. Yeah. I think in terms of mania and speculation and bubbles, I think, there's a strong argument that bubbles are socially beneficial, but then for any given participant, they may be privately wasteful. So if like mm, all of society is, or, you know, some good chunk of people are uh, manic for this new wave of innovation and a lot of capital and labor pours into expanding out the, the invention and, and its diffusion and so on, I think that can be socially beneficial, but any given player within it, might not fare so well. And, and, you know, we should heed that warning for ourselves because everyone thinks they can call a bubble <laughs> um, or that there will always be some greater fool to sell the asset to. But, but I agree with you. I think, um, I think these things can be socially productive, but, you know, caution should be, you know, buyer beware for any participant within it. Um, I think in, in any episode, I think there are, you know, there are going to be winners and losers. Um, so play accordingly. Right. Uh, something that really strikes me. Actually, no. Before before you do this, I want to do one more scene. Uh, are you familiar with the University of Austin? Like the yes. new one. I am. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? What do you think of the people running that? I think it's a good faith effort to create a unorthodox university. So you know, prestigious names involved big, big names involved, lots of money pouring in. And I think it's all coming from a very good place. Meaning I think uh, Joe Lonsdale, Neil Ferguson, I think they are right to call attention to the lack of intellectual diversity on the typical campus. Um, I think they also are correct that there are a large number of young people who really do want to have engaging discussions with opposing viewpoints, not just one monoculture. Um, where I would 
you know, would love to have a longer conversation with the people involved is that, you know, there are lots of theories about education um, and the, the college wage premium. I mean, the, the reason people go to college these days in such large numbers is, you know, the standard story that uh, colleges impart skills, you know, highly demanding cognitive skills that are then rewarded in the marketplace. But I, I'm not one of those. I, I don't believe in that consensus. Brian Kaplan's book, The Case Against Education, is the go-to source here for the alternative viewpoint, which is the signaling model. Um, that says, you know, the, the wage premium is not explained by the skills that people acquire. Instead, it's explained by uh, selection bias and then also, you know, the um, what people reveal about themselves over over time by finishing the degree. So, you know, are you willing to take orders and assignments, get them done, undertake a four-year project that requires great sacrifice and commitment? Um, that signals quite a bit to the labor market. It has nothing to do with what you learned while you were on campus. Um, so if, if the University of Austin is just creating another horse in this signaling race, well, then I think it could be, to go back to the last distinction, it could be privately beneficial because for any competitor in the race uh, to make money, it's good, you know, it, it, it may be valuable to obtain that signal the college degree to get, gives you, but it may be, but in the end, it may contribute to social waste, which is all these resources being poured into higher education that do nothing to improve the productivity of the economy, but instead create this arms race uh, between you know, people signaling different things. Right. So I, I don't, I haven't heard anyone from the university of Austin acknowledge this or talk about it. Maybe they don't care. Uh, maybe the whole point is just to create that unorthodox university and, and that may be fine. But from my perspective, I think, um, you know, the fact that uh, the labor market, it, it, I hate the idea that private companies are outsourcing, you know, the interview and selection process to universities and then having the government pay for it. That just feels unjust to me. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, actually, that would be a very cool podcast idea to have you and Panos Canelos, the person who's uh, in charge of you, Austin, uh, yeah. do a debate on this topic. Right? Yeah, Maybe I'll try be, to set I, that up. In I the would meeting. be up for that, for sure. Okay, so let's get into the meat of the book, though. The paper belt on fire. What is the paper belt and why is it on fire? Well, the Rust Belt came to define the area of the Midwest uh, that suffered from globalization um, and, and many other causes. But a lot of these industries were hollowed out and left rusting hulks, uh, large factories empty, um, and social and cultural uh, you know, wasteland. <laughs> so in 2013 or so, uh, one of my good friends, Balaji Srinivasan, and I, we used to just meet up and jam and and you know he coined the term paper belt but at the time we were thinking that the uh the the geography that stretches from Washington to DC to New York to Boston could be characterized as the paper belt because so many of the government <clears throat> institutions uh affiliated organizations and industries seem to be based on on paper and and we were feeling bullish about the the promise of 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 tech. Um, so, I mean, the burning has, has a, a bit of ambiguity to it because we also wanted to be the agents of the burning in a sense, if it meant replacing <laughs> some of these institutions. So in DC, uh, the government prints money on paper, rules, regulations, uh, visas, passports, uh, 
legislation all on paper. In Delaware, people incorporate on paper. Um, in New York, uh, the symbol is, you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, print news on paper, advertisers are there, Madison Avenue on paper. And then as the uh, arch symbol of the uh, U.S. university system, Harvard and MIT print diplomas on paper in Boston. And, and so that we thought was the paper belt. And then, you know, the coming, it, I, I think, and we could go through all the different institutions. Uh, I think COVID is a good example where some of these, the F, FDA, the CDC, uh, they all failed us in ways. Um, we could argue about the Federal Reserve failing us. A lot of the institutions that are meant to promote the common good in some sense have been failing us. Um, and okay, they're burning down, but I also have hope for alternatives. And so maybe in its purest form, Bitcoin is supposed to be this um, opportunity, you know, this option that people can leave fiat for. Um, Uber and Lyft, you know, there were, there were, Prior to Uber and Lyft, there was the medallion taxi cab system, and that was based on paper. Um, and instead, it was replaced by a system based on reputation, credit, and GPS tracking, which you know people seem to like better. So uh, yeah, I, 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 I wrote an essay in 2015 called The Nakamoto Consensus. Um, I had this one paragraph where I basically said, you know, some some version of that spiel about the paper belt. And then I said, I'm dedicated to lighting it on fire. Um, and, and what I meant by that was not that I'm a bomb throwing anarchist, as fun as that might be, but also, you know, that, OK, we can critique these institutions and show their failings, but we have to offer something that is different on the education piece for me. That's, you know, my early involvement with the Teal found the Teal Fellowship and then now with the Fund 1517, where we're trying to provide a a way for people to have a fulfilling and you know, successful career without obtaining a, a, a college degree or a credential. Um, so the paper belt on fire can refer both to the, the, the failing performance of these existing institutions, but uh, maybe there's a glimmer of hope too that you know, some people I write about are trying to also provide an alternative. Right, right. I think this metaphor is so interesting because it can mean so many different things to different people, right? You already mentioned like the crypto people, they say, you know, paper represents the kind of old ways of distributing authority and reputation. And we're going to change that by putting reputation on chain, right? By making it this immutable thing that doesn't rely on an authority uh, and can be attested to by any everyone in the network, right? Yep. And then... Uh, you could have someone say you can have someone who's like a conservative politician, right? And might, they might see that as paper is not necessarily uh, they don't necessarily tie tie paper as you know reputation itself, right? They like mm. their own, you know. They might have you know most politicians have a law degree, right? A plurality of them have a law degree. They like the law, right? Conservatives are quite good at actually you know having judges and lawyers and actually being good at the law, right? Being good at suing. Right. And they might see this as, you know, this is about this is about the print media. This is about the way of distributing information. This is about the way that people communicate. And yeah, I do think like paper is a thing that there's just a lot of sentiment against. Mm. And I'm wondering if, if, if you kind of chose that ambiguity on purpose or if there's something more specific that you mean by this analogy. No, I think that's it. I think it's weird how paper 
fits into a system of authority where um, whether it's the title to your car or your diploma for your education, the reason what makes that valid is that there's some authentication process from an institution and that institution is trusted. Right. Um, exactly. So yeah. one of the things I go through in the book, probably a little too long, but because I think it's important is Satoshi Nakamoto's original thinking behind Bitcoin as a way of analyzing institutions. And so if, if you look at the way institutions can become corrupted or unreliable, then whatever authenticating action they take for any given piece of paper becomes less and less valuable. And, and so the dream of these of blockchain technologies is somehow to create a process that does not rely on a third party to, to validate something. Um, instead, it, it's going to be some consensus mechanism um, and, and, and a system of incentives behind that. Um, and, and I think by seeing the, those two different architectures for social coordination, I think it helps see how, okay, if these old institutions are either insiders are colluding or they're corrupt, or maybe the tools of the institution just aren't up to the times. So it's like, I think the Federal Reserve could, we could staff it with angels, but given the levers that they have at their disposal, I think, you know, it won't always be the case that they achieve their stated aims, even if it's just, you know, low unemployment and uh, mild, you know, 2% inflation. Um, so I, 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 I think it is like the paper does become the symbol of a system where we have to trust third parties to authenticate things in those third parties have been, uh, ripping us off or lying to us. And so now what do we do instead? Yeah. And, and what's very interesting about this is that I think what social media did is it went from a situation, this is kind of funny, right? Because in a way we're getting to the truth, but in a way getting to the truth makes it more, makes the problem worse mm. where I think we went from a state where there was some degree of corruption, uh, even a greater degree of corruption. Right. But that, that uh, under say, for example, LBJ, right. You read all these biographies of LBJ is literally mm. taking, you know, taking like explicit bribes, right. Or <laughs> both taking and giving explicit bribes. Pretty awesome. Yeah. But, at the same time, there was a facade that needed to be maintained. There was a kind of like noblesse oblige, or at least like image of noblesse oblige, where you had to actually deliver results. And now it seems like it's that's kind of transparent. That's kind of expected. It's kind of like a meme now, mm. right? That like politicians are just always going to be corrupt. But that has you know that has that's obviated the need to basically actually deliver in some aspects, right? Like LBJ actually needed to deliver. He was corrupt, but he also, you know, in order for people to basically, you know, be okay with that corruption, he needed to, to deliver. Yep. But the environment nowadays, and I'm sure there are all sorts of complicated reasons, I wouldn't just attribute one of them to it, but at least one of the factors has got to be like communications technology, just how easy it is to find out, you know, yeah. what is someone doing in their, in their private life? What is someone doing, you know, with their, with their position of power, right? I, I, I don't know if you've come across Martin Gurry's book, yeah, um, Revolt sure. to the Public, but I, I, I believe his analysis here, which was that in LBJ's era, the governing institutions had better control of the information flow. <clears throat> and yeah, I so, mean, that, that point is just indisputable, right? Like, right. And so a lot of the corruption or incompetence could be papered over or forgiven or ignored. And 
only the you know the raw good stuff was was handed out by you know three news stations or four newspapers or, and so on but now we live in the chaos of of the wild west post internet and um i can't remember gurry's initial examples it might be something like uh was it dan rather where he thought he he had this piece of paper that proved bush avoided his time in vietnam um, and then it turned out, you know, someone on, on the internet was like, well, if you look at the typeface, that typewriter didn't exist in the early seventies. And so like this amateur just like demolished in rather. Um, <laughs> so I feel like that is the theme of the current era. I, it, meaning like, uh, some of the institutional performance and, and the decline of the performance might not on a relative basis to the past might not be, um, that different. I mean, maybe in the past, these leaders and institutions didn't perform that well, but because they were able to control information, the public had this sense of safety or competence. Um, and whereas now that, that information flow is just loose. So now it, you know, the level of incompetence appears to be higher than it was in the past. And I'm not quite sure about that. Right. I think that there's two competing arguments here, Right. There's two competing arguments on the nature of authority. And one is like, you know, there's going to be, it's basically like collapse versus stagnation. And I would put myself heavily on team stagnation. I'm not sure about you. Do you, like, here's where I think like the metaphor, actually, I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure if you think you just like believe something different than me, or if this is mm. a place where me the metaphor fails. Yeah. But to me, like the paper belt isn't really on fire, right? It's mm. like rotting. Maybe we want it to be on fire, yeah. right? It's but it's cinders. not like yeah, <laughs> okay. there are some people who think that like the U.S. is going to like collapse. Yeah, I, I don't think that's the case, right? I think it's just going to it's just going to like decline in efficiency. It's going to you know it's going to lose the edge that really mm. um, that really gave it its advantage. But it's not going to be like it's not going to you know it's not going to become Iraq. It's going to become right. like. It's going to become you know, Italy. The peak of the is British Italy Empire. all that bad? You know, not really. But yeah. is it the United States? Hell no. <laughs> right. I, I, I think that's a fair argument. So if the pinnacle of the British Empire is 1898, it's not like the UK disappeared. It certainly played a prominent role in world affairs um, over the over the hundred years and, and critical roles in the world wars. Um, but it, it was clear, even in World War II, it was clear that the country was not what it once was in terms of its power and influence. Um, so maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe there's some, and, and there's a lot of ruin in a nation, meaning as bad as things are, they can get a lot worse over a longer period of time. Um, I mean, and, and, and I think that applies to Rome too, the canonical example where for me, the end of the Roman Republic is really the end of Rome. Um, I know that, that not everyone agrees with that, especially a lot of Rome lovers on Twitter. But the, you know, the, all the greatness of Rome, I think, was achieved before Caesar. Um, and then every every emperor after that, you know, aside from maintaining order in the Mediterranean, they were living off the achievements of their ancestors. And it, and it lasted 400 years. Uh, so that's, not too shabby. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, so that, yeah, I agree. The same could be true of the United States. I guess the, the counter argument might be that, um, and we'd have to talk about the macroeconomic situation in the country and, and then how that fits within the world. And then, you know, and, and then ultimately just how big of a, 
you know, debt hawk are, are you? Um, will the bills ever have to come due? If the U.S. has to inflate itself out of this problem, what does that do to its economy? Um, I, I don't know how rapidly living standards or the functioning of these institutions would degrade at that point, but I think there might be a little bit of chaos. So here is one of my big disagreements with Tyler Cowen on talents. Hmm. He thinks that there's a lot, a lot of people who basically, you know, are, are undiscovered. And all you need to do is give them the opportunity. And like, I'm very thankful for that. You know, like, if, thank you, Tyler Cowen, for giving me money. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at the same time, on a kind of large, large level scale in terms of what is causing stagnation... To me, I think it's much more important to destroy basically institutions that attract and waste talent. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this idea of uh, the IQ shredder, uh, which I thought was, which was brought to my attention by Alex Kishuda, but actually uh, I was informed by Skeptical Waves on Twitter. Thank you, Skeptical Waves on Twitter. That actually comes from this blogger named Spandrel of basically the IQ shredder, right? So, so it's basically these places that attract a lot of very talented people and either, you know, don't put their talents to very good use and also uh, reduce their fertility rate, right? Mm. And I'm, I'm mainly going to focus on the first one because I think that's more related to what you talk about in the book. But to me, like, there are just a lot of organizations, you know, like, and, and this goes to, you know, the paper belt, like maybe we should just set large parts of the paper belt on fire, right? <laughs> So what do you think, what do you think between those two competing narratives or, or, you know, any other reason for where basically, where is the missing talent? Where has it gone? Right. It, either, you know, it's just, you know, gone undiscovered, either it's been pent up in these, you know, status organizations or, or some third explanation. Uh, yeah, I think one of Peter Thiel's lines is a principle for me on this, which is that courage is in shorter supply than genius. Um, hmm, what I think that to mean in this context is just like the, the lives people cho- choose to lead. Um, you know, they might be very bright people coming out of the Ivy League, but if, uh, you know, 40%, 50% of any class is just disgorging itself into uh, investment banking and management consulting, I, I have to wonder why aren't they choosing more interesting, exciting uh, you know, uncertain careers that might lead to great rewards or, you know, fame, fortune, uh, artistic success, you know, so that's very strange. Um, in, in, so maybe there's some social dynamic going on there. Some, why is that strange? Well, I mean, why, it's like, I guess, I guess there must be some rational self-interested analysis we could do where for any given participant, it makes sense. I I don't think it's that complicated, you know, like, this was kind of my mentality for a long time as well. I yeah, don't tell me your theory, need though. that much fame, right? You know, I, I want to, you know, not die. I want to, <laughs> I want to have like a reasonably comfortable life. Yeah. I want to, like, maybe this is actually different, but I want to have a family, right? But I don't need, you know, I don't need like $10 million. I need like $100,000 a year. And that's very much, you know, that, that's enough for me, right? Yeah. Like, like, I don't think that that's, too complicated or abnormal even i think that that's actually like that that's most people right yeah but the fact that it's wrapped up into this you know society-wide race to get into the best schools and then once there to 
gravitate towards these types of jobs. I feel like, you know, you could make 120K as an electrician in Wichita, but I feel like the people who are wrapped up in this mimetic arms Mm, race are after something else. I guess it's also status and prestige. Um, Yeah, I I don't don't think... maybe, Maybe another angle on this is to compare it to the decline of fertility where I, I don't know your theories about that. I don't have a good one because, you know, it's cross-cultural um, and across time. Uh, so I'm not quite sure, you know, something, you know, certainly as people get richer, they just have fewer kids. Well, it seems to be the case as a society gets richer too. It's like people become less risk. They, they become more risk averse. And um, I think it's less- just saturation of birth control. Yeah. Like to me, like, like the cultural attitudes matter so much less than that, just how much that's diffused uh, among the population. And mm-hmm. like, here, here's the thing with basically birth control is that I kind of, this is not a point that's original to me, but I'm kind of blanking on this. This is kind of like, this is actually like a very mainstream conservative point, I think. Mm-hmm. which is basically that it kind of turns the decision from like default on to default off. Right. Like you can say like, if you were someone in like the 1960s, right. Or like probably before that, I didn't know the exact timelines. There are people who are much more familiar with this. Right. But there's some point in time in like the recent past where, you know, birth control was at least stigmatized where you could get it. Right. Mm. But it was basically, you know, you had to swim against the social consensus at least a little bit in order to do so. And that now it's kind of the, exactly the opposite, right? Not only uh, is, is it basically ubiquitous, but you're kind of treated as weird if you, especially if you have children early. Yeah. Right. And so this is, and I do think that especially when it comes to basically such a kind of salient and utility warping decision, Right. Mm-hmm. that default on versus default off characteristic has a very big impact. And all yeah, of that is just yeah. downstream of, of, uh, of both technology and, you know, the kind of McLuhan um, meta, mm. you know, the society, the society shifting around the technology, right. The norms shifting yeah. around the technology. I, that, that is very plausible. What I, what I don't know off the top of my head are like country by country comparisons. So I think, it is true in India, for instance, that birth rates decline as the country becomes wealthier. Now, is it true that there is birth control readily available as it is in the West? I, I don't know. So, I'd, yeah, I'd, like I'd, I'd want to investigate that more. <clears throat> but I, th- I think by and large what you're saying is probably true. Um, right. So what do you think is the kind of – what what personality traits lead someone to become an innovator, right? Yeah, that's a million dollar question, <laughs> or big more than that. More than a million dollars have yeah. been made off that question for sure. Um, I think. Well, we're, we're sort of dancing around a lot of issues, and I, I tell a story in the book, which is you know the story behind the fellowship and what Danielle and I have done with 1517, some of the people we work with. Um, yeah, actually explain that for the audience for a bit. What is, what is 1517 fund? What is the Teal Fellowship? Yeah. So the Teal Fellowship was started in 2010. Uh, Peter, much like Lonsdale and others now at that time, 
he had done some investigation into um, perhaps starting his own university that could act as a counterpoint to, um, you know, the left dominant universities. Uh, but after a year of investigation, you know, his team, he and his team decided that it was just too big of a problem and, and too tough to, to pull off. So that was in the background. And then, you know, Peter, when the movie, the social network was coming out, you know, that was in the air and, and I, I showed up to work the first day and Peter had decided <laughs> to launch the Teal Fellowship. Uh, so it, it was this anti-college idea. I guess he had gone in the other direction and, and suddenly I was swept up into that. But so the Teal Fellowship is a $100,000 grant awarded to 20 people every year. Um, the, when we started it, the two noteworthy conditions were that, number one, you couldn't be enrolled in school to receive the grant. And number two, you had to be 19 and under to apply. So pretty young. Um, and I helped run that program for five years. And over that time, we saw some really cool stuff come out of it. So uh, most recently, Dylan, Fig- Dylan Field sold uh, the company Figma. He started uh, under our mentorship in 2012. Uh, he sold that company this last year to Adobe for $20 billion. Um, we helped uh, Vitalik Buterin launch Ethereum 2013. Um, so we just saw a lot of cool stuff come out of that. And by 2015, Danielle and I saw this could be a for-profit opportunity. So we started 1517. The year is our geeky reference to the Protestant Reformation. Not that we want to wade into religious wars, but that we, you know, the specific thing was the piece of paper. So in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his theses to the church door because he was... That's interesting. You know, that paper has kind of become the opposite of what it represented in 1517. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. So the church was selling a piece of paper called an indulgence. Luther hated that. He thought, you know, you, that you can't buy your way out of hell. Um, and, uh, so we made this analogy that the, the diploma is the modern indulgence that, you know, you're told right. you have to buy these things. It's the only way you can save your soul. You're going to hell without it. Um, so that, that's why we, we chose the number and, and, and I found numbers draw questions. So we made t-shirts and people would ask us what 1517 meant. And, um, and so that gave us a chance to talk about it. So, so that's the background is that we, you know, I, I, if I know anything about, talent it's because you know running the teal fellowship we were uh, we were talent spotters looking for people to support and then and now as a venture capitalist we we be- look for founders to back um so you know what are the qualities of an innovative individual well i the number one thing and i and i thought the i wanted to use the book as a meditation on this was just this your heuristic that peter teal has derived from uh Rene Girard, his uh, Stanford professor who he, he admires. And Girard ha- ha- is well known in Silicon Valley in the world for his theory of mimetic rivalry, uh, his ideas about social dynamics involving crowds and scapegoats and the social order, you know, using scapegoats to restore order during chaos or crisis. Um, and in Girard's writings, he noticed, he points out that the types of people the crowd chose to sacrifice were often the, the heroes of mythology as well as the victims. You know, a king for Gerard is, is a scapegoat who has not been sacrificed yet. 
Um, <laughs> and, and so he canvasses, you know, mythologies and so on, you know, for, for these examples. And, and, and one of the things that sticks out is that the, the person who is chosen as a scapegoat by the crowd is often a boundary figure. Uh, they are someone who is not an insider so much so that uh, they <laughs> they are, are you know part of the king's court and so on, uh, but neither are they so far an outsider that they're completely foreign because a complete foreigner could not possibly cause the social crisis at hand. Instead, it has to be someone who's a little bit of both. Um, and so Peter actually would use this as a uh, lens to identify talent. And, and a way of thinking about founders or employees, this insider-outsider polarity, um, or or whether the fact you had survived some mob in the past, if you if you had stood up for something as the only person in the room, and and managed to to live another day, that was certainly a virtue in Peter's eyes. And and so when I started doing research on creativity and so on, I I, I noticed. You know, this is under discussed in a lot of the psychological literature. I mean, sometimes it comes up in other ways where people try to point out that, you know, creative people have lots of different interests or so on. But but I think there's something deeper at stake here where there's something about polarities, the unity of opposites, insider, outsider, um, that I think can be quite generative. And so I wanted the book to be a meditation on that. I tell a personal story because I wanted to I reflect on you know, how am I an insider and outsider, both personally and in work? Um, because I, I, it's like Danielle and I have a VC fund and neither one of us has a background in finance. Uh, she's a former school principal. She started a charter school in San Diego, Innovations Academy. I'm a dropout uh, PhD candidate in philosophy. I thought I'd be a philosophy professor. So how, how do two people with no background in finance start a VC fund and, you know, as I like to point out, we've returned more money to our investors than the Ocean's Eleven team steals from the Bellagio and MGM Grand in Ocean's Eleven. Um, I think that's an interesting business story to tell, but I think it is undergirded by this idea, this, this unity. 17 or, or the hijacking? <laughs> <laughs> 1517, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Business economics of of uh piracy actual piracy not the <laughs> online kind would be would be pretty interesting yeah so um so what 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 are some of the characteristics of of innovative individuals to me it's it's those be- uh, people who are in on the boundary i think new things come from the outside in but you do need some level of mastery and some level of accomplishment. You need to obviously master the fundamentals before you add your own voice or see something new, but it's always going to come from the outside too. So that, that is something we look for. And, uh, and so, yeah, the book is about individuals and people we look for, but I think it's important to telescope out from there. And we've touched on this is like uh, creativity and in individuals is very, it's, it's not very known well in, you know, what promotes it, uh, where it comes from, like the psychological research literature on this is pretty lame in the end. A lot of just observational studies and some correlations, but n- not much that's great in terms of insights. Um, and why do you think that is? Do you I think just, creativity think is just so a hard, hard to, to solve, or is just is it just that people have a high incentive to lie about it? 
Yeah, it's like, I, well, for one thing, I think it's the reliance on laboratory settings. So it's like a lot of the creativity research will involve something like, let's put people in a room and give them a, a challenge. Um, what do you do with this box of candles and, a, and some matches? <laughs> and then how many different uses can you come up with this thing after some priming effect? Um, so pretty, pretty small scale stuff. And I think it's just, maybe it's just hard to find creative people to observe. I, there was a movie documentary that came out, I guess it was a year ago on the Beatles. It was this footage of the let it be album that, uh, had been recorded and Peter Jackson from the Lord of the Rings fame edited it and put it out there. And I think one of the most astonishing things about the whole thing was that suddenly we could see conjuring up from thin air, Paul McCartney writing, you know, these hit songs that we all know and love, but the fact that it was nothing and now it's something seemed magical. And the fact that it was on camera was really astonishing. So it's like, I, it's very rare to see creative people in action. And when you do, uh, it, it really is uh, dumbfounding. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it's just hard to, um, it's hard to measure, you know, how creative someone is. It's, it's usually some proxy measurement about how many ideas they can come up with. But to truly study creative people, it's like you got to see them out in the world, out in the wild. I mean, maybe athleticism is an example where it's like you could study how athletic people are, but that's not going to tell you how great a quarterback this particular person is. I don't know. I'm not quite sure. That's a great question. But not only are we ignorant about individuals, there's not a lot of information either on the types of societies – and, uh, and then, you know, different levels of society that are creative. So, you know, why is this creative cluster more productive than, than another one? Um, that could be Silicon Valley, or it could be, you know, the arts in Florence, um, or painters in Paris in the 20s. Um, and then, uh, you know, over time, why is the same nation less creative than it once was? Um, or, you know, why are some nations more creative than others? I think all these are open research questions that are under investigated and I by no means have the final word on any of this, but I wanted to touch on all these, this telescoping effects from the individual to the group, to the city, to the nation. Um, I think, I think we do have to reflect on this question more, um, because I think progress is important and, we could debate the moral importance of progress, but I think we, we, we need a better understanding of what drives it. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to involve some story at each one of those levels that I just mentioned. Right. I, I, do think, I do think a kind of technological progress is important. It's better. It's good not to be poor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm in Canada right now. I believe the temperature outside of my house is negative uh, five degrees Celsius. Wow. Uh, it's quite cold, not really, not easily, at least not easily survivable. So I'm very thankful for that. Uh, very thankful that I have heating. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure. This, this is very interesting because it's obviously a very hard correlation to draw the relationship between uh, social beliefs and technological progress. What, what do you think that is? Well, I think there are certain things that are harmful to innovation, and maybe that could be traced to some specific cultural beliefs. Um, certainly just a low openness to new experiences, 
in general, or it could just be religious prohibitions on on certain things. Um, I think that that that's pretty clear in how that can limit progress. But when you look at cross cultural or cross national comparisons, um, it's tough to draw any conclusions that like any one religion or culture seems to have like the secret sauce. Uh, of that said, uh, you know, the Deirdre McCloskey is probably the main proponent of this idea that out of, out of, you know, so one of the big questions about this idea of creativity is, okay, there was an explosion with the industrial revolution, um, in, in the UK in the you know, late 18th century. Uh, why did it happen there as opposed to France or China? Um, and why did it happen then? Um, you know, as opposed to 1500 in China or, um, you know, zero in Rome and McCloskey's answer is some cultural component. And I think there's, there is some truth to that, that, you know, something about the UK where, uh, this idea of betterment became culturally pervasive that you could improve your station in life and, uh, the, the world, uh, that maybe that's an outgrowth of the Enlightenment. Maybe it's part of the common law traditions of England. Not quite sure, but it did seem to be the case that you know a large number of people in the UK adopted a different set of values than than the rest of the of Europe, for that matter. So I, I, I think it, it certainly plays a role, um, but it, what we don't know is like how much um, and how to sustain it over time. If it does, <laughs> I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Right. I mean, this is this is kind of related to the the scapegoating thing, but to me it, it I think like to someone like you or me, anyone who has any kind of exposure to I don't mean like financial exposure, but just like exposure like informationally uh to kind of trading and markets and kind of basic economics. Mm. Uh it's very intuitive to people like us to think in terms of like cost benefit analysis. Right. And yep. it's really only like in the last two years that I've kind of realized how rare it is that that thinking actually exists. Like a lot of thinking is essentially like paranoid delusions. Mm. Like, I don't think that's an exaggeration that a lot of people <laughs> when they're like considering like the possibilities and weighing the options essentially function like someone uh like the difference between them and say someone who is making a cost benefit evaluation is greater than the difference between them and someone who is like a paranoid schizophrenic (laughs) and like the paranoid schizophrenic applies that same type of reasoning to like is someone following me around right like i think most people can like correctly adjudicate like the question of like, is somebody following me around, but like does not, but does not apply that same kind of basic reasoning to the question of like, is this a good opportunity to invest in? Or like, is this a good, um, is this a good, you know, societal decision? Is this a good risk to take? Should we prohibit this technology or not? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think that became, you know, the case in point, Exhibit A would be COVID, where suddenly all cost-benefit analysis about different decisions went out the door. I can't remember once some of these ideas being debated. What's interesting with COVID is that a lot of people's instincts were right. 
right? Yeah. This is kind of like my, this has been something that I've actually been thinking about writing as well of like basically saying like justifying a kind of high-low alliance which which is kind of like the traditional Republican Party, right? Mm. Is that like a lot of people had really stupid reasons for opposing lockdowns. And a lot of those people ended up making, like, in my opinion, the wrong decision with regards to vaccines as well, right? Just yes. in terms of like their own personal health. I think it was not the correct decision for many of them, especially those who were particularly old, right? Mm. Which I mean, like conservatives, a lot of conservatives are old. Uh, but to me, like a lot of those people's instincts also actually kind of like rebelled against the worst excesses of, of kind of lockdowns and of hysteria in a way that was not necessarily, you know, for the right reasons, mm-hmm. but I mean, like I'll take it right. Like if, if I'm going <laughs> to, yes. if I'm going to like force myself to live in the world where everyone has to agree with me for the right reasons, right. like I'm just not going to get anything done. I forget the name of the meme where it's maybe it's like the midwit meme where it's some belt yeah, of distribution. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's the midwit meme. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Right. Like, for the audience, and yeah, it's like it's like some bell curve, and like that. The, the punchline is that like the left end of the bell curve and the right end of the bell curve are basically saying the same thing, <laughs> right. right? So you know, like for, on lockdowns, it might be like okay, the left the left end of the bell curve is. Uh, I don't care. I just don't, I just want to be outside. I just want to see my friends. Right. And then the middle would be like, Oh no, you know, we have to, we have to band together in order to, in order to uh, social distance and flatten the curve. And then on the right side, it would just be it, it, it lockdowns are cost benefit negative. We should just go <laughs> yes, see our friends. Exactly. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I think you're right about that. Uh, something happened where, the cost benefit analysis went out the window for the midwits. Um, and, and it did be, I mean, I, say, like, I think that's the wrong way of framing it. It didn't go out the window because it wasn't there to begin with. Well, like right, this is exactly. my original Based point. On what you just said, it's like, it's, it's a very rare way of thinking, even mm. among like this kind of the thing, right? I know a lot of, you know, like math Olympiad people who basically think, you know, they, they might not think the average person is like 145 IQ, but they think the average person is like 130 IQ. Right. And that's, you know, that's not as bad, but that's still very wrong. Yeah, it's true. It's hard to underestimate <laughs> the stupidity of the public. It, it's like, it's not even stupidity. Like, th- this is the kind of thing, it, it's like, most people's mental model of like a stupid person is like someone which which is like i think reasonable right which is a reasonable first approximation but but gets a lot of things wrong is you know someone who basically takes the same amount of time to come to some to some conclusions and basically makes a lot more careless mistakes right who's like adding you know adding some numbers together or like basically like someone who is like trying to do the cost benefit analysis but just like adds the numbers wrong yeah. right and i mean like that that might be true right that it might be more likely that they add the numbers wrong but the more important point is that they're not doing the cost benefit analysis in the first place that's not what's intuitive to them yeah right that's the point i'm making right yeah, it's like yeah. it's like yeah, we came on to this like the, the uh, resistance to innovation. It could just be, you know, a status quo bias enforced by reptilian hiding brains, where it's like, you know, we can't possibly 
have human challenge trials. That's just wrong and seems stupid. We got to trust the FDA. They're amazing. Um, I mean, human challenge trials in particular is a kind of like, is, is a kind of risk aversion that I think, I don't know, that to me is not really like an intelligence thing. Like there are some very, like there's a kind of like a fallacious version mm-hmm. of this. Right where it's like oh because like one one there's like one person who like contributed a lot that means like some kind of predictor like IQ uh, or like genetic predictors is not uh, is not there on the population level. Mm. But I do think like in term like I do I don't think the correlation between IQ and like neuroticism is necessarily like uh, negative. Right, it might mm. even be positive. Yeah. Like, especially, like, 115s. And, like, we're getting, like, a little bit off off track here. But I think the <laughs> yes. point... Yeah, I, I think the point is that, like, this is not... Actually, your, your kind of paraphrasing of Teal was basically right, right? Like, yeah. the, the courage... Just because someone has, like, the capacity to do good doesn't mean they will, right? And yeah. I think this is a point where we would definitely all agree is maybe, maybe not, like, Tyler, right? Maybe this is contra Tyler, right? Mm. But, like generating the will to do good and to do like amazing things is more pressing of a problem right now than generating basically the capacity or the opportunity to do good. Yeah. Like there are a lot of people who could just like with the resources in front of them right now. Right. And, and to be honest, this is, this is played a lot into my own personal decisions, right? Hmm. I can ask this, you know, I've gone through four years. I did not, I unfortunately did not take a Teal fellowship. I did not apply to a Teal fellowship. I almost done my fourth year of uh, undergraduate. Uh, I might even do, I've at least like considered doing postgraduate stuff. Okay. Uh, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of negative on it now just because of like the moral question. Mm. But like the reason why I do this is just because I find math really enjoyable right but mm. to me like this is the question i'm asking like am i the baddie right you know like like you know like that, that sketch yeah there, there's a lot of stuff that i could be doing right now and you know i'm proving like theoretical theoretical results about like basically pure math like yeah. is that really what i should be doing right now and well, I do think the there are a lot of- like all right we've talked about individuals and maybe some of their characteristics um and then maybe why some societies are resistant to innovation. Um, One of the things that I think is important is this idea of an arena of ambition. And maybe it's like so clear in the case of sports where the the arena of of ambition might be professional soccer, baseball, basketball. And there's something charismatic about those sports that draws, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to play the game, uh, when they're younger of those, you know, some people really dedicate their lives to trying to make it in college and then, and then the pros. And so I wish there were more arenas of ambition. I mean, with math, it's sort of loosely affiliated with the, it's in the university and then a little bit outside, but there's no sense of like, an ambi- you know, if you're ambitious and you want to be a great mathematician, what do you do? Well, maybe you just become a math professor. But I wish there was something deeper than that, which was like, hey, here are these unsolved theorems or, uh, you know, some particular set of problems. And, you know, no matter who you are, if you want to be a great mathematician, then it means attacking these problems in some fashion. I I feel like there's not enough of that in society across the board. And and maybe this ties into the, 
be why do so many people become investment bankers and so on is that there aren't enough other arenas of ambition where it's rec- where it's charismatic it's high status and it's also exciting to be a part of that you know you're some recent entry in this in this great game i think uh doesn't exist for a lot of things that should um so uh, you know that's not a individual innovation question it's more of like a societal one like how, what are the institutions or you know uh, um how, how do how do we change things so that it does draw out these talents to compete in this fashion right what's interesting is at least in my opinion that charisma isn't always correlated with you know actual value yeah i think at least at least in the middle term short to middle term right yeah, i feel that the way amount about professional of value sports. That expected from from crypto Right. Yeah. Okay. Was, crypto is a good example, but like, I, I mean, that was like a very weird. Back. It was a very weird opportunity of basically like charisma, charisma, and some kind of underlying technology aligning. Right. Like mm. a lot of people, like I know Rune has been on this podcast, uh, has like pointed out, you know, just like the difference between investing in ML versus crypto and i think for sure like i'm very confident that ml is going to be the more fruitful technology mm. i mean like just just look at the returns we have now right with with less with less near-term investment and it's just it is just fascinating mm. right but but to me kind of yeah and machine learning especially because it is so closely tied with statistics which i've called like the ultimate anti-meme Right, the ultimate kind of like anti-charismatic thing, in that it takes basically like these stories that people love obsessing over and boils them down to like you know, you know how how likely was this actually? Right, was this just anomaly? (laughs) Was this noise? And a lot of the times it is. Right, yeah. Uh, So so you end up with a scenario where I think a lot of the most pressing problems today are kind of surrounded by this sort of these sort of like invisibility cloaks. Right, that make it pretty yeah. hard for people to just get excited about. Yeah, there could it could be the case that they were just prohibited. So maybe in the case of nuclear energy, just the the enormous difficulty of creating a new reactor, you know, prevented anyone from ever wanting to become a nuclear engineer. Um, right, but there are obviously case studies where that isn't the case. Right, like like yeah. like with machine learning. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are now, you know, now that they, people have kind of like caught attention, right? There's sort of political pressures. I think like Hanania and a few others have kind of documented the kind of like politically correct censoring of GPT of GPT three. Right. But you know, on a large part, I don't think that's the main constraint that stops it from moving forward faster. Like the. The question of that, that is the original question that you're talking about, right? And I think right. that's the correct question to ask is like, why is there not more charisma and what can we do to generate more of it? Yeah, I agree. And some things just have a natural, like natural charisma more than others. And so space flight seems to seize the imagination in a way that, um, you know, maybe nuclear energy doesn't. Um, but, but, I, th- I think it has to be said that Elon Musk is is certainly a charismatic individual, and the fact that he's able to land rockets on a floating platform in the ocean is quite impressive. And I think that stirs the imagination. 
So how do we, uh, you know, I don't, I, I'm not one for like, hey, we need to change the marketing on certain technologies. But I do think it, when I think about the education system and the way it's set up, it just seems like the, the way it's always just about scaffolding and accumulating knowledge. And then maybe one day you'll get to contribute to the frontier of the field. And so I think, you know, as a society, we might be better off, though, if we somehow move the frontier forward somehow uh, to get people jazzed about things uh, or to at least understand what the unsolved problems are. And maybe that might be a good place to start when it comes to, you know, seizing the imagination of a young man to dedicate his life to it. Um, I don't know. I could be wrong on that, but... But it's like if, if, if there are very few 15 to 18 year olds who have any idea about quantum computing, but if we could somehow get, you know, what are the unsolved problems in quantum computing to an 18 year old, you know, maybe they don't have the tools to solve them then, but at least it will orient their education uh, in such a way that they, they then try to build their education so that they can contribute to that problem. That's one thought I have. I, I may be wrong uh, on that, but but outside of the, the other response would be to just say, hey, we need to, how do we raise the status of, you know, these scientific fields and so on? And that just feels lame to me and, and, and really hard to do. I mean, we're not going to make a bunch of Hollywood movies about different, you know, technological problems. I feel like that that isn't going to inspire anyone. Uh, I think to me, like people, people need to like wealth more. <laughs> Uh, i agree okay i agree with that that's very contrarian yeah i think you're right i'm kind of like that we celebrate wealth yeah yeah um it's it's very funny because i don't know though is is this just because that's that seems more realizable right that that seems more plausible like it's kind of really silly to imagine a world where you know society writ large thinks like oh snap this person solved a difficult statistical problem <laughs> yeah. we, we, we this, this person is like awesome now right like people just do not understand what's happening it might as well be dark magic to them but it's more understandable to see like, like it literally might as well be incantations like i don't know <laughs> like right. and it's it's just more it, it's just more plausible that people really admire basically like the output of those incantations. Right. Yep. And sometimes that's still not measurable. Right. Like do people really understand, you know, how their dishwasher works? Right. Yeah. Like, 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 like they can really basically only just see, you know, you know, I put the dishes in and then they come out and then they're clean. Yeah. Right. So, so just measuring that output and, you know, measuring that output in terms of dollars, I think is, the best the best solution we've come up with so far <laughs> okay i think there's there's a lot there that i think has potential i think what do you mean meaning i think there's a if if let's say the statistician the the genius statistician made hundreds of millions of dollars and then lived an interesting life um you know I, and i don't know what that might be but let's just say it's something like um, you know, driving fancy cars, beautiful homes in beautiful places, <laughs> um, you know, I don't know, whatever makes an exciting life. Um, I think you're right. That might be a draw. Um, I wish we did celebrate wealth more as a reflection of someone's creative capacities. 
Um, I, I, you know, obviously billionaires are hounded as villains more often than anything else. I mean, if we could change one thing about Hollywood, it would be for once to make a CEO a hero instead of a villain. Um, but I think you're, it's like wealth is always seen as something that was illegitimately obtained for the most part. I think even less so wealth. This is something that Mark Andreessen pointed out is that like in every Hollywood movie, the guy with the plan is the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, right. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the good guy is usually like pretty dumb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like Hans Gruber versus uh, John McClane in Die Hard. Hans Gruber has got the classical education. He's brilliant. He's got the plan to rob the bank. But John McClane is the planless, uh, fun-loving, uh, blue-collar cop. Yeah, and, and that, like, what's interesting is that I think the people who are, like, creating that kind of content are also kind of, like, very pro-authority, right? Mm. And that might be, like, a thing that's only in the present day, right? And there are some people, you know, like uh, like Freddie DeBoer mm-hmm. or, like, um, or, like, Noam Chomsky who really, like, you really say like what what's what what happened you guys you're supposed to be anti-authority right <laughs> yes. uh i mean I, I grew up you know uh, i'm a zoomer i grew up really past where that era was ever anti-authority right i don't really remember an era where hollywood was kind of anti-authority anti you know like governments hmm. right th- th- this is something that is completely foreign to me but i'm told that this this happened at some at some point in time, right? Yep. Uh, I don't know. It, it seems, yeah, it seems like this. there's this kind of like cognizant, cognitive dissonance there in terms of like, you you know, you know, you, you probably would call most of your, most of your uh, movie characters, movie protagonists, conspiracy theorists, right? Right. This is also something that's very funny. I talked about this with Michael Shermer, that a lot of the time there actually is a conspiracy in these movies, right? Like every <laughs> James Bond movie yes. is like, the plot of every James Bond movie is a conspiracy theory, right? Yeah. It, it's literally like an, a villain who is concocting this plan, who is colluding with like dozens or hundreds of people internationally and putting this, like, put, putting together a scheme to like, you know, Steal kill the entire city. a weapon that can destroy yeah, the world. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's so true. I, and, and maybe, so I'm not a fan of Ayn Rand. I mean, I guess I am in some ways, but not a Randian. Um, but I, you know, maybe she deserves a lot of credit because it was very contrarian to create a set of novels where, um, you know, the creators are the heroes. And in the case of Atlas Shrugged, that the, the, that she celebrates wealth and money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I think that, sorry, go on, go on. No. Yeah. So I, maybe there's something, I don't know how to revive this and and maybe it's just, it's like a charisma school for, in the, in the same way that uh, I guess the pickup artists are trying to teach men charisma is like maybe, maybe, you know, scientists, entrepreneurs and so on need charisma classes of like, Hey, you know, when you're successful, please live an exciting life <laughs> because <laughs> it should serve or a glamorous life. Like how do you teach someone to live a, gl- a glamorous life? Because, you know, how you choose to live will serve as a beacon to those who come next and, and might inspire them. Uh, you know, the one thing, you know, my one contrarian take on the movies is that uh, 
I think, you know, never before in history have we seen so many action movies and hero movies. Uh, so to me, I almost, my skeptical take is that they actually serve as a substitute for real life action and therefore a form of pornography where a lot of younger people are getting their kick on action and risk taking through this cheap substitute of watching Marvel movies instead of, you know, maybe doing something a little bit thrilling in their own life. Um, so I, I worry about the substitution effects with, with entertainment, whether it's novels or movies or so on. It's like there's some optimal zone where it can serve as inspiration. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it can also drag people down by becoming a, a poor, cheap substitute. I mean, I think here's the thing, right? I think in a lot of cases that substitution effect is good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's most true with sports, right? Like it, it's kind of. I think this is like a fairly robust anthropological finding that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of kind of human societies play sports instead of, you know, going to war. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a substitution that I very much appreciate. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I, I, I'd much rather play a game of soccer than, you know, shoot someone. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess there's some research to support the idea that, um, you know, the prevalence of pornography and availability of prostitutes leads to less, uh, violent crime among younger hmm. men or and even, you know, sexually related violent crime. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, right. Well, so, I, you know, I, I don't know if, if everyone's just plugging into the matrix, that, that would be the ultimate uh, fear I have is, is I think we should not discount reality. And I don't know what the imperatives are to get people to to go out into the world and actually make a change, but I, I think we should try to find them. Yeah. I, I'm someone with very similar intuitions. I think maybe, maybe this is the difference. Yeah. I, I just have a much more kind of negative theory of, of desires here. I think like, Hmm. You know, in a way, like I, I kind of wrote this as like an offhanded remark in one of my comments or in, in one of my articles, but I think it's true that basically, you know, social progressivism is like, it, it's an anti-truth, not only in that it's like the opposite, not only that it's false, but in that it basically allocates resources in the worst way possible it allocates status in like the worst way possible hmm. where the kind of explicit competition that actually generates productivity is is heavily stigmatized and the kind of implicit competition the kind of like social climbing which which destroys value is uh is valorized yeah it's kind of like yeah i see this that to me uh, is kind of like anecdotally when i i give talks at high schools um, and sometimes colleges is like the number of people who want to, who are kind of interested in entrepreneurship, but also want to do good. They always pitch some like uh, nonprofit idea in their minds. A nonprofit is more virtuous than a for-profit business, just no matter hands down, no matter what. And I think that's part of this progressive social status ranking that you're referring to where for some reason, I don't think it's just progressivism. Yeah, you know, like a lot of social conservatism is like this as well, right? I, I know I dunk a lot on social progressivism, mm -hmm. but 
this really is kind of like more of a human thing. And, and I do think there are probably population level differences. Yeah. But, you know, it, it is kind of like Nietzsche and slave morality, right? That, that's what it is. It's like a fear of people who are competent because they are competent. It's like, it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's this part is, of that. But there's really also this is, like uh, yeah. willingness, th- this idea that do-gooderism is somehow the highest form of virtue. And therefore, the best careers that someone might undertake are anything relating to government or nonprofits or NGOs <laughs> instead of, uh, you know, starting a nuclear uh, battery company or something. Right? <laughs> and, 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 and the truth of history is that far more good has been done for more people through markets than through nonprofits, right? So the amount of attention... Right. I, I think you're kind of like over overthinking this, Yeah. right? Have you ever been in, you know, ha- have you ever been just uh, in a group of, you know, just not that remarkable students? Yeah. Yeah. Like the competent, like there's no, the reasoning there isn't like, you know, hatred of markets, right? It's not like socialism. These aren't like all people who are reading Marx, but you know, (laughs) you have basically, you do have a kind of fear of people who are more competent, whether that's someone who's more competent athletically, they're someone who's more competent academically, Hmm. more competent artistically, Right. There's a kind of envy that happens there. Right. This is a very important distinction that a lot of people draw between envy and jealousy. I make this point about Elon Musk a lot. Right. Mm. Uh, If if you're someone who has the talent, let's say you're like Jeff Bezos. Right. And you say, like, you know, I think that Tesla, I don't know if he actually thinks this. Right. This is a hypothetical. Right. So like Jeff Bezos can reasonably say, you know, Tesla stock price is inflated and I should be the richest man. Like I should have whatever Elon Musk has. Right. That's like a reasonable claim to make. But for like a New York Times journalist to say, like, I deserve what Elon Musk has, like, that's just not even like plausible. No one would believe that. That's just ridiculous. So what do they say? They say, you know, billionaires should not exist. No one should have these resources. The Mm. point isn't even to give me resources. The point is just deprivation. Yeah. The point is just deprivation of the other. Right. And that to me is like a very kind of unfortunately right i don't mean this as a kind of normative thing or like i don't mean this as like a as an ought i mean this as an is this is just how a lot of people think and behave right or like not even think but like subconsciously act is like the deprivation of people who are more notable especially people who are kind of put in a sphere of social competition, right? Especially people who are like right next to you, Mm. but with kind of advanced communications technology, right? Maybe that includes Elon Musk. Yep. Yeah. I think that's a very sharp analysis. I think that's right. Envy is much felt, but little discussed and uh, no one, and, and, and it's hard to admit when you're motivated by envy. I think it just seems to reveal the worst about you, but, Nevertheless, it has to be true that, you know, the humans are out there motivated by envy. And so even though you think you're a crusading New York Times journalist, you're actually just some envious prick who wants to destroy someone who accomplished something. Yeah, yeah. Everything else, I think like this was, it was some kind of conservative commentator who said, said this. I think it was Nina Power who said envy is the only sin 
that is not satisfied by by growth, right? Mm-hmm. Envy is the like everything else can can be kind of satisfied by basically material prosperity. So as the years have gone on and we've gotten the you know the products, there's just a lot less you know there's a lot less wrath. Yeah. There's a lot less. Uh, there's a lot less. Um, uh, the, Maybe more lust. Actually, I don't know. Maybe there's more lust, but it doesn't <laughs> manifest in like rapes, right? Yeah, it manifests right. in people watching porn, right? So this is something that can be satisfied with like with your um, with your material resources, right? Hmm. It's only envy that continues to motivate people after they've been kind of like satisfied, after they've been allowed to indulge, and if anything, it, it like grows stronger. Yeah. Right? So, so to me, like that's that's kind of why it's become such a remarkable phenomenon in recent well maybe not in recent years but in recent decades let's say mm. well yeah it's a it's a, it's a judgment formed on a relative comparison so even if you're jeff bezos it's still possible that you will envy others because you're judging yourself uh, you know against elon musk or something you don't care about the janitor in dallas texas um you know one of the great documenters of this sort of stuff is Tom Wolf, the novelist is mm-hmm. basically all the conflict in Wolf's novels are driven by envious people, no matter how rich they are, high, how high on the totem pole, there's always someone else who's doing something better, who has something you ha- want, but don't have. And, um, you know, it leads to comedy and satire in Wolf's world, but, uh, in the real world, it's, it's tragic because I think, um, we should be celebrating great people. Right. Actually, okay, so let's return to the original point of identifying talent. Hmm. This is one additional kind of friend group, maybe the group that's most relevant to how we first met, right? We first met at ISI, yep. right? This kind of conservative, actually, are, are they are they like explicitly conservative? I don't know, conservative leaning. Yeah, uh, they say, actually, they, they have a podcast the... called like Conservative Conversation, so I'm going to call them conservative. I think right? I think that's fair. Yeah, they use the word liberty sometimes in their <laughs> material, but I feel like the they're less they're definitely more conservative than libertarian for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know though because you know day one they had like the Austrian economics debate that I could tell. Like, you know, I talked <laughs> to some people about it afterwards. They were not a lot of Austrian economists in the audience. <laughs> yes. uh, so that, that was, that was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, we met at this, this conference, which was mostly students. Mm-hmm. And do you think, basically, do you think like dissident politics correlates with talent in some way? I think it does today. Any, any sense where you have to defend something unpopular and, and truly believe it. I think, uh, you know, if you're a minority of one in a room of, of people who all believe another thing, I think that can be very powerful. Um, and, and so it just so happens to be the case, especially among students or, you know, people your age that to, uh, at least in my understanding, it seems to be the case that just to be a conservative at all is to be in a, a very small minority. So it could be the case that the the burden and cost of having those beliefs in a university is so high that it reveals something important about you as a person. I think that's true. Here's, here's once again, like maybe a meta contrarian point. Yeah. Right. This was the model, like this was the model that I had of basically, you know, dissident politics before, Mm. but that's not what I, I, I think it is anymore. You know, like I don't, I used to think that there are all of these people 
who, you know, are self-censoring because of like liberal pressures. Mm. And, you know, then I invite some, some liberals to basically these parties I have, and they're just like still there. And like, they like not so not like, or like very easily, right. They have with like very little hesitation, you know, you know, most of my friend group is like pretty based, right. (laughs) But they flip to admitting, you know, and, and like actually like going like most actually I have some friends who are like a lot more base than me, you know, just mm. in terms of their priorities and in terms of their kind of like moral attachments, right? They yeah. kind of flip completely to the other end very easily. And they don't do this. I don't think they're like Sam Bankman freed where they're just like mm. calculating like, okay, how do you, uh, I manipulate these people, right? I right. think that it really is sort of this, I, I make this point with Hanania as well, uh, I really don't think there's a lot of thinking going on there, right? Mm. I really do think, you know, these people, like, there are two ways to model this, right? One way is to model it as, like, you know, there's rational people, and then you add on all of these biases on top. And to me, like, really, it's more of a kind of speciation <laughs> where <laughs> most people are just, like, not thinking about these things, most mm. people, their default way of conversation is not like, what is my, what beliefs do I believe are true about the world? It is this sort of like impulsive, basically game that happens. Yeah. And to me, basically, this is not a hundred percent, but I think like, or like, it's, uh, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient yeah. for basically people to not have this way of engaging with this world, right? If you want to be, or like, want is this is kind of like a the wrong order of it right but if you want to identify this is better the better way to do it i think mm. you want to identify someone who is going to like make a significant change to the world right that has to not be the way that they engage with the world the way they engage with the world cannot be basically you know like a pavlovian response it has to be like there, there has to be something there there has to mm. be something going on and you know there are a lot of conservatives who definitely have that trait and who lack some other skills to become, you know, founders or some other kind of like talent. Yeah. But it narrows, it definitely narrows down that trait, which I think is an incredibly rare trait to have. Yeah. I guess it could be helpful to segment creative fields. So I don't think that's true of painting or music necessarily. Right. Um, but there does seem to be. Uh, I think it is. I don't know. Well, oh, I don't know what we're arguing necessarily, other than say, um, I think in the world of in, startups, in order to, and tech okay, so there science, are two claims. There are two, there are two claims here, right? Yeah. One is that most people engage in this kind of like in this way that basically they don't even have beliefs yeah. around the world, right? They, they don't have stable beliefs that that port from conversation to conversation. Yeah. At all, right. Right. It's not even like they're hiding them. They they just don't exist. <clears throat> and, and claim one is that that's true for at least a large a large plurality mm-hmm. if not a majority of people uh and number two is that that thing is predictive or, or that thing is necessary but not sufficient for for talents right yeah I, I, I see i think there's something about tech startups that draws a type of person who while it's not their main preoccupation they do have an interest in the way the world works and maybe they have some theory, not comprehensive, but something that interprets the world as a whole, 
and that could be globalization or you know the U.S. politics. You know, they seem to have views on these things. Um, but I don't know if that's true. I certainly agree. Is like the average person is like you know some bundle of uh, different reads of of political beliefs, and you know which one you happen to have at any time could just be a lottery based on the context. I don't you know I don't know how to explain it, but yeah, that they're much more malleable um, in their views. But I don't know. Yeah, there's something about uh, and and maybe because it does require higher order, uh, you know, cognitive abilities to to build a tech company that maybe those types of people just also have theories about the world. Um, I don't know. It's a, there is a correlation there, though. Whereas I don't think that that's certainly not true of like rock bands or hip hop groups, right? <laughs> I think the, you know those people very well are just you know reading the New York Post day to day and reacting to the headlines they see and, you know, who, what's cool to believe in high status. Um, I don't know. Seems more impulsive to me, but I don't want to deny their creativity either. I think, you know, they could be geniuses at what they do. I mean, I'm obviously, you know, not familiar with the internal workings of rock bands. Yeah. But I would, I would guess that they have to engage with their music like what ideas they want to have in their music they have to engage Hmm. in some kind of they have to have principles with regards to that right i don't think necessarily they're doing like cost benefit analyses like i think like the kind of way to have principles is very different yeah but you have to like notice things you do have to notice you know you have to consistency test for like what what elements of music actually do appeal to my audience Hmm. right i think you do have to have a stable model of that yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but to go back to the question, like, are political beliefs a good uh, correlation for, you know, how someone's ability as a founder and so on? I, I, I think it's it can be light and context dependent. There's no sweeping statement I want to make about, you know, being a uh, – just because you're a radical in your politics doesn't necessarily mean that you're – going to, you know, build an interesting tech company. Um, and I, and I think that signal from that idea has, has waned some over the last decade as well. Really? You think that's, that's waned. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, why do you think that? Um, just because I think it became, it's kind of like the self reflection uh, or the reflexivity that, you know, as soon as Peter Thiel's question, interview question about, you know, what truth do you believe in that no one else does as soon as that became common in the world then people started preparing answers um so oh okay yeah and so i think you know in an effort to sort of if if it becomes known that uh, having strange beliefs is an indication of some inner virtue then you know maybe people you're going to start to get fakers out there who want to mimic the signal right right this is like good heart's law or something right yeah Uh, exactly yeah. right. uh, is that hmm. that might be true in the kind of vc level mm-hmm. i think like once you're already you know making company and you're pitching it to vcs mm-hmm. i think that that's plausible yeah because you're i'm not sure teal has the exposure in like the general public for good <laughs> yeah, if yeah. you were just in uh chicago talking to a cop and you asked the cop, you know, what do you believe is true that the rest of your world thinks is false? I think you'll get a good answer because there's no way that person has heard of Peter Thiel or cares. Yeah. 
speaking of motivations, mm-hmm. right, what, what role do you think? I think you referenced Neil Stevenson several times in the book. Mm-hmm. What role do you think science fiction has in inspiring tech founders? Well, yeah, this ties back to that movie question. I think it can have an enormous influence. Um, whether it's like just the specific device in a, in some story. Um, so it could be, I don't know, an example might be the tricorder in in Star Trek. Um, and, and because you see it and you see what it does on screen or you read about it, that could very well inspire people to, to want to build it. Um, I think Stevenson though, for me in particular, is more interesting as a depictor of of culture than necessarily as a describer of novel technologies. And so his books, uh, Diamond Age and Snow Crash, um, he tried to think through what the consequences of a world of strong cryptography and something like Bitcoin uh, would be. And, and so it led to this you know, very strange world of decentral of, of pockets of communities that adhere to different values. And, and it's just such a, in, in diamond age in particular, if I think of all the different societies that emerge in that world are fascinating, these neo-Victorians, these distributed libertarians, these drummer, hedonistic drummers and so on. It, it felt very plausible to me as a consequence of, of that technological change. Um, so in that respect, I, I think Stevenson is fascinating and, and I, there's something about those worlds that have drawn inventors to try to build things, um, in them, uh, everything probably from seasteading to, uh, crypto people. So in that sense, yeah, I think, I think sci-fi has a inspirational role to play, um, that that's the positive case, and then and then the negative case. So, uh, I mean, there are so many dystopian stories out there uh, that are to go serve as some kind of warning: do not build yeah. this. Um, and 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 then that can cut either way. Where I forget. Yeah, the tweet have you out seen there. the meme that's like in in my in yeah. my cautionary tale? Right, I, I have invented the torment, or I've invented the torment nexus as a cautionary tale where <laughs> yeah. technology could lead. Tech yeah. company. Yeah, that's the we one. Have, at long last, we have invented the torment nexus <laughs> from the famous sci-fi book. Don't invent the torment nexus. Exactly. I think <laughs> I think that could very well happen as well. Um, it's almost like I, I want to say it's almost like all fiction is pretty much science fiction now. Um, I guess there are novels about family drama and current events uh, and so on, but just to add, you know, anyone, even serious novelists from Jonathan Franzen to Ian McEwan have all tried to address technological change to some degree um, or another. And, and, and so I think science fiction now is just fiction by and large. Um, but, uh, you know, that said, it's like a, it, I, this cultural question is a tough one. I, you know, if you said, okay, well, does that mean we should have more science fiction authors out there envisioning future positive futures? And and that might be good. I, it's just so hard to, to say though, how, you know, something becomes great in a culture and, and worthy of emulation or inspiration. I don't know. It's a tough thing. I don't know what to do there. I mean, we've been talking so much about the theory of cultural products, right? Let's talk about your cultural product. Yeah. The book, it was a very interesting format for the book. Yeah. Because it was very it was very narrative driven. I did not expect that. Mm-hmm. You 
like especially after reading Balaji's book, yeah, right, which I think is somewhat related. I was I was expecting something more like the network state, right? right? Not necessarily, and this is not necessarily a negative, right? But why did you why did you decide to write the book in that way? I'm just a storyteller. Um, I you know to uh, we've I've been kind of hemming and hawing about the influence of stories in people's lives, whether it can serve as a, a role model inspiration or <laughs> a, a virtual substitute. But in my own life, I just, I am drawn to narrative. Um, and when I, you know, I was, I mentioned I was in grad school, I dropped out. I, you know, when I was younger, I, I did love Tom Wolfe as a writer. Um, he's just someone I always admired and, and Wolfe himself, dropped at it. Uh, you know, he thought he was on his way to becoming a professor and, and became a journalist. And so when the day one of the moments where I decided to leave school, I was, came across a collection Tom Wolf had put together on the new journalism, uh, in the 1960s. And what was the new journalism? It was the, these journalists who suddenly realized that they could, uh, use all the techniques of the novel, uh, scene by scene construction, character development, um, and and use that to tell a true story that reveals mm. you know the truth of, about something. Um, in Wolf's case, you know he wrote the electric acid Kool Aid test, but it's like Joan Didion and the, uh, her book Slouching Towards Bethlehem. It's something I love. Uh, where yeah, they're not arguments. They don't write uh, well. For one thing, they reject the pyramid form in journalism, which is you know the story you read about finance or sports, where you have the lead, the who, what, where, and why, and then you know the pyramid widens down below that. Um, it's just more about conveying information, whereas a narrative is a story, and a story involves uh, you know characters uh, intending to achieve some goal? And then, you know, what are the obstacles that get in their way? And I, I, I just found stories gripping, enthralling. Uh, and so when I came time to write this book, I realized, you know, I'm, I, I'm not good at policy analysis or, um, you know, long form arguments and publishers pushed back on me. They're like, why do you want to tell these stories? I just thought it, you know, it'd be a way to, to bring people into the world to, Get them to feel the detail, the tone, the atmosphere, and, and the sounds and sights. Uh, and then once I had them in the story, then maybe I could use that as a springboard for short forays into arguments or observations and so on. Um, so that that was my aim in, in writing the book that way, um, was to give people the the inside account of something. And, and I know story, it's like a lot of people in, in tech aren't interested in stories. So um, yeah, yeah. You know, for me to go out and do that, I think was a deliberate way of saying, okay, well, you guys can read this, but I'd also like the outer world to sort of know what was happening in this world. Mm. Yeah, that, that is something that I've kind of reconsidered a lot lately, the, the importance of stories, especially like, I think like, the kind of sub area of tech that I'm kind of exposed to mostly, you know, machine learning and also hardware mm. is just like the most kind of um, the, the least concerned with not telling a story, the least concerned with, you know, this kind of uh, this kind of charisma. Mm. Right. And for ML, for sure. I think that's, that's been to its detriment. Oh, interesting. Like it is, it is kind of strange that these two things seem 
so uncorrelated. Uh, hmm. Maybe Elon Musk is, is an exception. Yep. Uh, where he's someone who has a kind of charisma, but also has technical skill. Hmm. Um, yeah, I guess like the, the common sense to it is, or like the, the kind of like default line is just, you know, there are trade-offs in nature, right? <laughs> yes. and, and that seems reasonable to me. Yeah. But like the, the extent to which it seems so uncorrelated it is really surprising to me. And, and the correlation being like the interest in stories and interest in... Or like I should say uncorrelated, anti-correlated. Anti-correlated, right? Yeah. yeah. Like negatively correlated. And, you uh, have... I, I read a uh, review of Scott Alexander that he wrote of, of Tom Wolfe's uh, electric acid Kool-Aid test. And his number one complaint was, why the hell did he write a story? I just want his analysis of, you know, this group <laughs> yeah, yeah, of people exactly. and why they got high. And, <laughs> okay. Well, that yeah, you're right. It's, I think it's a, a certain type of mentality. Um I also just think it's a lost art. Um, I think it's hard to tell a good story. I don't know if I succeeded, but you know, when all, all the great books I love that are uh, call it narrative nonfiction, I mean, are just so compelling and, and, and really pull you into a world and make things exciting. I even, uh, you know, someone like Michael Lewis, I have a love hate relationship with, but you know, some of his best books are just so hard to put down and really can change an industry like Moneyball, for instance. Um, and and so I, I believe in the power of that kind of book to, you know, influence the world, uh, but do it in an entertaining way. I think that, you don't it doesn't have to be like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell at his worst, where it's like, oh, here's some case study um, that's <laughs> supposed to explain the whole world. Um, no, I, I, I wanted to get into the richness of detail of, of, you know, who are these characters in this world I worked in? What's it like to work with Peter Thiel? Um, you know, th- the fiction uses the idea of, of theme, of weaving themes. And I noticed a, a few subplots that I thought could be wound together in a way around this idea about appearance versus reality. So it's like college degree appears to be reflect some truth right. about the substance. Right. Uh, but then, you know, what, what is the reality? It's not clear. And, and, and then, I, you know, that theme comes up in different ways uh, in the book that I thought could best be conveyed through you know, multi-plot line story. Hmm. So I don't know people, I, I, whether I did a good job is up to the reader, <laughs> but, uh, but I hope people enjoy it. You know, people seem to be saying, you know, some parts are funny. Uh, some parts are, you know, people are enjoying my, uh, the, so the story is like the first two thirds of the book. And then the last third, um, I outline a number of unsolved problems in different fields that I think would show that we're making more progress than we have in the past. If we, if we knock these problems out and that, you know, is a little bit more in the mold of the argument and analysis than, than the rest of the book. Right. What do you think of, um, do you think that sex differences are underrated or overrated in terms of, uh, in terms of considering in founders? I think sex differences are underrated. Um, they just have to be because we live in an egalitarian age, um, that wants to believe, you know, in even among, even among VCs. Well, what I mean by that is I think, I think the fundamental, this is the blank slate, blank slateism is the, is the norm. I think, uh, but how many VCs are blank slatists? 
right? I mean, specifically among VCs. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it'd be hard for me. I can't, I, I don't know. Um, I, I bet there are more VCs out there who would say, yeah, I think women are overlooked um, and they should be given a better shot than they're currently given. Um, whereas you know, the, the really like contrarian <laughs> cancelable, cancelable thing to say would be to say um, that there are just far, you know, just the bell curve distribution, the, the, the wings of the bell curve among men is wider than it is for women. And so, um, you know, just in terms of sheer number, uh, there may be more people who are, you know, men on the right hand distribution than, than there are women in total. Um, both both of these seem or like they might be or like the latter may be true but it still seems like a very naive way to approach you know actually building in sex differences and investing yeah right this is i I talked about this a little bit with uh brian kaplan Mm -hmm. we didn't i think we didn't get too far of it but he he basically said you know like recalibrating for human nature is kind of like a utopian task yeah. But I think there are kind of like incremental ways to do this mm-hmm. where you can say, all right, like you don't want to like force it into a business that doesn't already exist. But for example, you know, if there is like a, if there is like a specific dynamic with a female uh, with a female uh, founder mm-hmm. who is able to do these kind of like very, you know, female typic things in a way that is like productive right? Yeah. In a way that actually generates value, like that could be something that's overlooked, right? Yeah. It's not necessarily saying, you know, like at an aggregate, are, yeah. are women overlooked or are, are they, you know, overrated? Right. Right. It's like, you know, I ask those types of questions sometimes. Yeah, that, that's fair. I think, I think it's true that there are... That is kind of like a question I asked, to be fair. Yeah. Right. But to me, like the kind of, you know, there, there's kind of like a I think Jonathan Jonathan B makes this point, right? Mm. Where a lot of like naive Girardians just go and they say like they say like oh there's this or like not even Girardians but a lot of like naive people say like oh there's this pattern of conformity. Mm. So I'm not going to think very hard about it. I'm just going to do the opposite, right? <laughs> and that's like that, that's not like proper contrarianism, right? That's like you know that that doesn't actually get you any closer to the truth. Getting to the truth is you know actually actually trying to uncover like where is the where's the missing value here what can i do to do better Mm. right yeah that's well said i don't yeah i I just think in general that the i think camille paglia just said there you know you can't have mozart without jack the ripper Um, (laughs) and it's just true among men that uh that it's our nature to have that wider variance um and so that creates a supply problem and whether, you know, culture can rectify that in some way or should is an open debate. Uh, but I think we should acknowledge that, uh, that men and women are different. Um, that doesn't mean I go out looking for, you know, uh, like when I'm out there interviewing people, I take everyone as an individual, but, um, but it is true just that the, you know, the number of men who start things right now outnumbers women um, and, you know, I think that will be hard to change. Uh, you know, I think we can do a lot better in, in, in many ways, you know, from manners to, um, 
you know, fi- uh, like a, a, the thing you brought up is important is like, I think there are a lot of businesses that are female oriented that might not, you know, that can be funded because, you know, the men who are making the investments don't think of those industries. But, uh, but I also think that men are drawn to these sort of competitive uh, risk-taking fields in a way that women aren't by nature on average, you know, so maybe that's controversial. Um, but <laughs> I think uh, that's just the way, the way it is. Um, and, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I mean, like one way, like the, the kind of straightforward way I've kind of wanted to air this criticism for a while. I'm surprised I didn't, we didn't get to this with Richard, mm. but a lot of the kind of like, you know, I find like Richard Reeves to be like an extreme, like an incredibly like. So do you know? Do you know who Richard Reeves is? Yeah, I read his book of Boys and Men. Yeah, yeah. So, so Richard Reeves, you know, he is like you know, he is like you know a social progressive mm-hmm. who kind of like. Uh, takes his priors seriously i think right where he basically goes and says you know in a lot of areas such as such as work Mm -hmm. and life you know or like sorry not work but in a lot of areas such as like school right and and dating uh and i think uh drug abuse right Mm -hmm. men men are doing worse and therefore we should be more egalitarian by like doing things for men Right. Yep. And you know this just completely misses the point, right? Like men are doing poorly because you have co- converted all of these systems into systems where social climbing is more beneficial to mm. like the average person than you know actually being good at stuff. And you have you have consequently subsidized social climbing. Yeah. Right. And his you know his solution to this is basically to award basically men like himself who are, you know, trying to do the same grievance playbook, not necessarily incorrectly, right? Right. Like, I don't think it's actually, like, I don't think the claims that, you know, men are worse are doing more poorly at school or, um, or, or with substance abuse. I don't think those claims are incorrect, Hmm. right? I just completely reject, you know, this kind of, basically this kind of like slave morality, right? Yeah. I I agree with that. Yeah. I think his descriptive claims are interesting and true. I mean, it's hard to deny that once you see the numbers, it's clear that men or boys aren't performing well in school compared to, to girls, the high school level at the college level. In some places it's like, yeah, and even a solution, right. Yeah. Is, is this kind of like stupid egalitarianism? Well, where, like, yeah. I, I'd have to part ways yeah. with Reeves is his prescriptive answer to these things are, he has a view of the male brain that it's slower to develop. And so he puts forward this idea that we need to redshirt all men, meaning, you know, boys shouldn't start school until a year later than, than girls. And then the next thing would be that, well, men just have to change so they can do these, these pink collar jobs, <laughs> I guess. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. And this is very funny as well, because I think those are actually one of the first jobs that will be obsoleted by AI. Like people <laughs> yeah. kind of like, don't, yeah. Like, Right. This is exactly the thing, right? Like, what is the, the, this? Was the stuff I was saying in like 2017 when I was, you know, actively reading ML papers, and we were still talking about, you know, convolutions, mm. right? In the days 
when we are still talking about convolutions, I put this claim out there. Okay. That the most, you know, aside from things that our computers are good at and humans, uh, humans are bad at, like chess, which were obviously going to be the first mm. things to go, right? The thing, like the first things to go were actually things that both are bad at, right? <laughs> yeah. so what's, some, what's an example of something that like both humans and machines are bad at? I think one very good example of this is just teaching. Like I think mm. the average teacher, yeah. just like in like the vector space of possibilities, right? The average teacher is just awful. Mm-hmm. It's just like completely terrible, has an extremely poor understanding of you know, math psychology yep. uh, is, is not very good at adapting to the individual students. And part of this is just based on like resource constraints, right? You know, time, mm-hmm. you know, malleability, knowledge, intelligence, right? And part of this is just because it's it's like a quote unquote hard problem. Yep. And this might be like somewhat difficult for machines as well. You know, it's multifactorial. It's not clear uh, the full range of inputs to detect, mm-hmm. right? It's not sure how you would create the level of interaction you have some problems with bottlenecking the students interactions yeah machines aren't good at motivating humans either are the things that like destroy you know are are the things restricting ai that much worse than things restricting humans i don't think so and the other area was like arts right Mm. uh it, it just seems like completely obvious to me that like ai will have better jazz solos than (laughs) humans um this just seems very true because the kind of like jazz recombination you know the kind of experience or like the kind of experimentation Mm. that you do to get that i think like i think humans are just like very bad at it and you know will machines will machines get to like you know the extreme you know theoretical pinnacle of it maybe Mm. not but i think that it's very i think it's like the human bar is not that high as well and so so like returning back to this point like i think a lot of people view basically humans as very good at catering to each other's emotions yep when i mean you just look at the amount of social conflict this seems obviously false like it seems (laughs) obviously true that in terms of like bedside manner most bots will just have like an explicitly greater explicitly better bedside manner than like 99.9 percent of nurses. that's funny and you know maybe in some kind of like private hospitals you know maybe maybe you know like in the u.s markets will save you and you know the 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 highest you know top 0.01 percent of nurses they'll be employed in some kind of private uh institution but the amount i just think you know like the threshold of machine performance in order to achieve basically these kind of like quote-unquote care work jobs it's just going to be so low it's just going to be like you know like that's that's, that's been like this has been this is is increasingly like the non-contrarian take but only Mm -hmm. after ml disproves it right all you need to do at this point in 2017 this was a contrarian take yeah you know i'm very happy to admit that in 2022 you know this is like a matt iglesias take right Mm -hmm. and the thing that like gpt proves is not that you know like machines are incredibly good at essay writing but that most humans like the average you know english major just sucks it's just awful (laughs) it's true and that's the thing i'm I'm, all i'm telling you you guys Mm. right all i'm telling all of you guys who are listening right now is that just extrapolate the same thing that we just proved about painting and essay writing 
to, you know, like human conversations or like specifically mm. to like human conversations that are meant to like emotionally satisfy the other. Yeah. Bedside manner, teaching, coaching. Right. And, and something that's interesting is like a lot of this is like intentionally designed both to like obfuscate uh, or like not intentionally designed, but like evolutionary. Mm. It's like evolved. It's an evolved strategy to basically deceive themselves and try to basically gain kind of like social favor by, by like incompletely satisfying the other. Mm. And, you know, basically leads to this being one of the things I asked you the question before, right. About whether, uh, whether elements of psychology were bad because people, whether it was just a hard problem or because people have a high incentive to lie. I think when we're talking about like social interactions, things that are meant to like socially satisfy the other, Hmm. that's literally the area where there is the maximum incentive to lie, both evolutionarily (laughs) and just like strategically. And so I think that basically, you know, taking us, taking like a kind of GPT three approach, large language model approach, this will just be like revolutionary and a lot of people will hate it. A lot of, you know, especially a lot of like very empathetic people mm. will really hate the fact that their kind of like behaviors, which which are like, you know, among the top in terms of like people pleasing, in mm. terms of humans, that their behaviors will be shown to be basically like very exploitable tactics. Yeah. And basically I mean, maybe like, that the, happens in therapy. Like, yeah. In, in therapy yeah. where like, well, I think this has always been true yeah right it's just only being shown this is the same thing with art this is the same thing with um essay writing this has always been true it's just that it, it's only when the machine is able to do it that people really are forced to consider the extent of individual mm. differences well yeah and so to push back against richard reeves i'd say well for one thing this this as you pointed out the whole school system has become this vast pyramid in which to advance you must please the, you know your superiors and and boys and men just aren't very good at that so what did boys and men used to do on average well they used to do pretty hard dirty jobs that required manual labor and those jobs are still out there but we denigrate the <laughs> trades we require people to sit in rows and desks and you know buildings for hours on end and the male uh, mind and heart is not made for that, not on average. And so I, you know, it's like weird alliance between me, the, uh, you know, VC technologist, a pro progress person and like call it like the masculine <laughs> men's rights world where it should be like this outrage that, you know, boys are sitting in chairs for hours on end in some cinder block room. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is just going back to the thing that I think we started talking about at the beginning of this conversation about basically making alliances with people who believe the right things for the wrong reasons, right? Yeah, I do think a lot of those people are motivated by grievance, mm. and I think that like most of the time, like people who are motivated by grievance have bad ideas, and actually, I think some of their ideas are bad, right? I think a lot of Richard Reeves' ideas are bad. Yep, but at the same time, like on the fact of like just ex- admitting explicitly true state or like empirically true statements about sexual differences. Like, of course, right. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna lie about something just because someone, uh, someone I dislike tells the truth about it. Right. It's like exactly the same mm. kind of like, you know, 
functioning contrarianism that we were talking about earlier. Yep. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, right. So I think uh, I think we're kind of um, boiling down. I, I think I've kind of gotten to yeah to the end of, of the road, at least on these questions. Of trying <laughs> to get so. your so. model of like identifying founder talent. We we, we covered a lot like of ground. What yeah, I'll say yeah. is, I, I do outline what we look for in innovative people in the book. So people, right, right, right. The paper built on fire. Yeah. You know, everyone should read it. It's a good book. It's a thrilling book. You know, uh, do you have any pitches that you'd like to add for your own book? No, but thanks for having did me you, on, did, Brian. Michael Gibson, did you enjoy reading your own book? Did you? <laughs> do you think your own book is good? <laughs> I, I I leave that to the reader. Um, but thanks for having me on, man. I, I always a great conversation. Wait, 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 hold on. Wait, there's one more question. The oh, last question of the question. show. Okay. Yeah. What is something that has too much chaos and needs more order? Something that has too much order that needs Ooh. more chaos and hopefully something we haven't talked about yet. Hmm. Jeez. I can only think of like easy examples. Um, you know, the easiest example, I, I just really think we under, uh, over the, it's just so abundantly clear, although more so to conservatives than the left, that, you know, cities are, are deteriorating and there's just too much disorder and chaos and that, you know, simple law and order goes a long way to establish the peace and safety. Um, I saw one of the great cities of our time, San Francisco, uh, destroyed in 10 years because of uh, too much chaos and disorder. So, you know, maybe that's obvious, but I, I think it is worth, you know, saying, because it's just really sad to me that American cities are in decline. They are hubs of innovation and creativity. So to that end, I think uh, sad that we're losing them. Where do we need more chaos? Um, I mean, I, I just, eh, we already talked about it. I think the school system is too orderly. I, I think it needs more chaos. And what that means is like more people doing different things. Some of them won't work. Maybe many of them won't work, but I think we need to discovery process to find uh, what does truly lead to a better education. Because in that respect, I think we're in the dark ages. I think that we don't really know how to teach people and motivate them. Um, and we have a long way to go. Um, but, you know, we have already talked about those things. So, you know, areas where I feel like, Maybe we need more. I think, geez, I don't know. Hmm. I don't have it. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Thanks for having me, Brian. That was my conversation with Michael Gibson. If you enjoyed the show, the number one thing you can do to help us out is to let a friend know. Just like I said at the beginning, you can help someone who has similar interests, who has similar habits, and at the same time, you can help the show uh, get more popular. Other things that you can do include leaving a positive review, uh, giving me comments, or recommending future guests. I would really appreciate anyone who does all of those things, or any of those things. And as always, there'll be another great episode next week, Monday, and you'll have to subscribe if you want to get notified of that.